I'm Anna Bauer, legal fellow and courts correspondent at Lawfare. Today on Lawfare No Bull, on October 10th, in a hearing in Fulton County, Georgia, Superior Court Judge Scott McAfee heard oral argument on a series of pretrial motions in state of Georgia versus Kenneth Chesbro and Sidney Powell. The hearing covered Chesbro's motion to dismiss the indictment on supremacy clause grounds and his motion to exclude legal memos from the upcoming trial. The hearing also covered Chesbro and Powell's motion to dismiss their charges based on First Amendment protections. All right, so the supremacy clause, the reason I filed that brief is obviously we're all sort of learning about these things. I don't even remember learning about it in law school, frankly, to be honest, until I got involved in this case about six, seven weeks ago. So what we know from the supremacy clause is if state and federal law conflict, then federal law displaces or preempts the state law because of the supremacy clause. So if we go to my next slide, the reason I brought up the supremacy clause in this issue is it seems like in this case, there's just a fundamental misunderstanding in some of the pleadings that I've said read from the state. All I ever see is the governor certified the panel that was democratic in this case, and therefore anything else that was done, i.e. a second slate of electors, fake electors, alternate electors, are all fraudulent fake, and that's what all the substantive counts talk about. And that exactly is a fundamental misunderstanding by the government because the governor certifying it is almost a non sequitur. It essentially means nothing under the ECA. And even in our own code section that I've cited there, Your Honor, it talks about once the governor certifies the election initially, just a few days after the actual voting takes place, only then can the challenges to the election start. And if we read the ECA, the issue with the governor certifying it is when all the votes get to Congress and the two houses of Congress cannot agree, then and only then does the governor's certification break the tie, if that's the case. Otherwise, the governor's certification is not the end all, it's not the be all, because lawsuits don't even start until after the certifications. All right, so where does that lead us then, Your Honor? What we've got is Article 2 and Clause 1, um, and then the ECA, the Electoral Count Act, again, it's something I've had to learn about in the last couple of months, specifically give a very limited power to the state. It's not like we all think, because most people didn't even know what the Electoral College essentially was, how it worked. It's, it's all federal. So if we go to the next slide, what we talk about under the supremacy clauses, what happens if it's all federal? And so that's where the preemption doctrine comes in. And then there's three types of preemption being structural, field, and conflict. In our case, I think all three would arguably apply. Structural means basically the exclusive authority to handle something is just with the federal government. And I cited Cook v. Greylike, and I provided, I think, copies to everybody this morning once I finished it up. In Greylike, it was the state of Missouri was trying to enforce term limits to their Congress people that were leaving the state of Missouri, and they said, you can't do that. That's exclusively federal. And what you'll see in the future slides is the actual voting process and how the presidential ballots get sent to Congress is an exclusively federal process. We then have field preemption as far as that goes. And that basically means if Congress has got so much law or so much explanation out there that there's no room for the states to supplement it and that federal law is so dominant. And so once I cite all the Georgia statutes, the court will see that the federal interest in the voting after what we call the safe harbor date becomes field preemption. And I'll talk about that in just a moment. And then I cited English versus General Electric here to the court. And that's a North Carolina case where a whistleblower 
um, was alleging safety violations at a nuclear power plant. And that case was very interesting in that what is purely federal because nuclear power is regulated by the feds versus what a state civil claim could be. And it was an interesting talk just to get some background. And we finally have conflict preemption where the two sets of laws conflict with one another as far as this election goes. And so compliance is impossible. And we're saying in this case, it's impossible because if the second slate of Republican electors vote on what's going on and then send the ballots, that's essentially what all the predicate acts and a lot of the um, substantive acts in this case are saying are false in that when they voted, they were being fake electors or fake government officials. When they signed it, that was a forgery. And when they submitted it, it was a false document that was being presented. And the state is just, it's just a fundamental misunderstanding of what um, the, the rules are here. So the state is trying to usurp the Congress's um, authority in here. And so I've cited Nelson v. Loney. It's back from 1890. But the reason that's important is it was a Virginia case where there was a dispute as to which congressperson from Virginia would actually go to Washington. And so Mr. Loney ended up testifying and the state charged him with perjury, sort of like what we have here. And they said that is a purely federal matter. And even though it's from 1890, it has been reversed. And you know the state will say, Manny, you can't cite anything, you can't do. This is all novel, Your Honor. We all know that this is all novel, so we can call it, there's no case law, whatnot. We're sort of figuring it out as we go because this is a case of first impression. Under Pennsylvania v. Nelson, in that case, which is somewhat familiar to us, if you want to think about it that way, it's a member of the Communist Party that's trying to overthrow the government in Pennsylvania. And in that case, he was charged with sedition under the Pennsylvania laws, and he was convicted. The Supreme Court reversed it, saying sedition and all those types of things are purely federal matters, and they don't apply. Um, with regards to loaning, if I could approach you on it. Uh, just the opening sentence in Loney just basically tells you, as far as the supremacy clause, <clears throat> what is supposed to happen. And then as you read through it, you'll get a lot more of the details. And then at the end where the holding is, it basically says the feds get to do um, these purely federal matters. They get to control and the state convictions can't stand. Um, so with regards to, I've already mentioned that the governor issue is that the Georgia law itself recognizes alternate slates of electors. So if we look at 21-2499B, it specifically talks about the Secretary of State getting each slate of presidential electors in subsection B it's sort of buried in there. And you have to actually read all the rules in the law to sort of understand it. And that is presented to the governor and the governor can certify anything. So in this case, the governor could have said, I agree with the voter fraud issues and I'm gonna send up the Republican ballots. Well, the Democrats get to send it up too. And it's somewhat parallel to Hawaii and some of the other early 1800s cases. But Georgia law itself in its own language talks about a second slate of electors and therefore they are not per se illegal as the state has charged in this case. Um, I would also ask the court to recognize under OCGA 212180, if, Judge McAfee and Manny Aurora decided we're going to form a party and we get 1% of the vote in the state of Georgia. You and I and 14 of our friends, Your Honor, could go to the Capitol, follow the rules as to how you're supposed to vote, and submit our own slate of electors under Georgia law. And that's 21 2180. As long as we have 1%, we're a legitimate party at that point and we have the right to vote. And that's something that the government has, I'm hoping they understand. Next slide. And so, what I want the court to focus in on is Georgia law is very limited, as I said in the beginning. So 
what they can tell you essentially is where it says meet vote. That's where can the presidential electors vote? And it says specifically in the statute 21211 as directed by Congress. And Congress says you have to go to the Capitol and do it at noon and all those kinds of things. And that's what we've adopted as a state under 21211. It also talks about how you can nominate a presidential elector under the code section and how you qualify a presidential elector, how to fill vacancies under state law, and then the ascertainment that the governor signs off on. But it never allows the state to have the power to control how they vote and then how those votes are submitted up to Congress. Those are specifically Electoral Count Act functions. And the important thing is the Electoral Count Act essentially runners two pages. The first page is 258 words and a massive run on sense, which nobody seems to understand. And I want the court to recognize that because of the confusion and sort of the lack of any history out there except for some learned treatises, we changed the Electoral Count Act in 2022 specifically to avoid what happened here in 2020. And those are some of the eventual briefs and things like that that Mr. Chesborough wrote that we'll talk about under the First Amendment issue. Next slide, please. So what we have to understand is the government the governor certification isn't a final decision. That's just the start of the process. And so 21-2524A basically says you can file challenges within five days of the certification. That's when the party essentially gets going. That's not the end. And so I've also cited another statute that sort of talks about that tangentially. Next slide, please. And so when I say that we can have multiple sets of electors, we're using Governor Kemp's own words here from November where he said earlier today, Secretary Raffensperger presented the certified results of the 2020 general election to my office. State law now requires the governor's office to formalize the certification, which then paves the way for the <coughs> campaign to pursue other legal options and a separate recount if they all choose. So the governor's certification is just the start of the process, whether he certifies it once or twice like he did in this case, we then get to challenge those certifications if we choose to in court. And as I said with the other statutes, we have a right if we have 1% of the vote to present our own slate of electors. That is not illegal and it's not a forgery. And that's just a fundamental misunderstanding that's been argued at the federal courts down to your honor as far as um, preemption goes. Next slide, please. And so the one real United States Supreme Court case that I could sort of find that talks about elections is US term limits, Inc. versus Thornton. And I'll let the court sort of review it. We've sort of cited it in our brief as well. And I don't need to rehash all this stuff, but it just again says the state is very limited in what it can do for presidential elections. And I think I cited you the half dozen statutes that talk about that. Next slide. So then what is the Electoral Count Act of 1887? And again, understand the language has dramatically changed between 2020 and 2022 when they amended it. So for about 130 years, it was a two-page document would run on one <coughs> giant run-on sentence as far as that goes, and we fixed that in 2022. So the key takeaway is it's all been codified under Title III. And so the safe harbor date, which this term I've used before, means it's six days prior to the electors meeting, and which in our this year would have been December 8th of 2020, and that's codified under 3 USC 5. And again, I put 2020 next to all of it, because if you Westlaw search it now, the new will come up and you'll be like, Manning, what are you talking about? Um, and then the final judicial determination of the controversies or the lawsuits have to be done at, by the safe harbor date. That's sort of what the ECA says in its plain text. And then the meeting and the voting 
via constitution and the ECA is basically the first Monday after the second Wednesday or whatever they used to say, but in our case, it was December 14th of 2020. And so nationwide, everybody at noon would have done that. And that's under subsection seven of title three. And finally, the counting date is that Congress has to start the count on the sixth and can go as long as they want as they're in session under subsection 15. And once Congress has started, they make the final decisions. If there's open lawsuits pending, the law will say that they get to decide what, it, what the right answer is. And again, if one house says X, one house says Y, then the governor's certification, whoever the governor chooses to certify, and there's no requirement that they take the majority person or not, the governor can have a wild hair and do whatever they want. Only then does the certification come into play. Otherwise, it's just sort of like arraignment in our case. It's the starting point of when everything happens. So let's talk a little bit more about the provisions. At least five different times in the text of the ECA, they talk about we anticipate multiple slates of electors being presented to Congress. It says it over and over and over again in a two-page document. I found at least five places specifically. It's out there and it's specifically codified under section 15 of Title III. Next slide, please. So the issue becomes, if you are accused of being a second slate of electors, which is then being a false government official, and if you sign the vote, that's false. If you submit the vote, that's false. It makes compliance with state and federal law impossible, and that's where conflict comes in. The ECA and the state of Georgia recognize multiple presidential elector ballots can be generated. And again, if we just had 1%, the McAfee Aurora ticket could generate its own set of electors. Congress can throw it in the garbage when it gets there, but it doesn't make it illegal. And so essentially the state is usurping Congress's authority in order to do this under all but limited case law that we have. And the last slide, please. So aside from this issue, I would, also ask the court to consider like the 10th Amendment and the 14th Amendment. One of the questions that people in my office had asked me, um, well, if everything's preempted, why can't state law control anything as far as, you know, you're violating state laws? The laws in this case, being it the fraud, the submitting false ballots, false voting, are purely done at a federal level. They're not necessarily a violation of state law in this case. That's why preemption is important. This isn't murder. This isn't aggravated assault or rape or robbery, which is purely state out there. So if you compare the 10th Amendment with the federalism as to what they've given us, we get to control murder and all these other street level crimes. But under the 14th Amendment with regards to the ECA, and it tells you how to vote, how to do this, what to submit, what ballot goes up and how it gets voted on, it's purely federal at this point. It is not a state issue because you're committing a federal act by doing all this stuff. And therefore, all the preemption doctrines apply in this case, be it conflict, be it field because it's pervasive on the government side, or if it's purely structural, which means it's overwhelming. I think all three apply and the court can hang its hats on all of it. It's just a fundamental misunderstanding when I read the government's pleadings and they talk about, well, the governor of the state of Georgia certified this and that's it. And, and that's just not it. Even if he certified it a second time, which he did in this case, lawsuits were pending at the time and it was up to Congress to decide on January 6th who won or not. And the certification of the governor's only the tiebreaker as far as that goes. And so I don't see a way around the ECA. I don't mean to be flip about this, but it's relatively clear. Thank you, Your Honor. Oh, well, don't run away just yet. Uh, so just want to kind of clarify a few things. Uh, so are you 
basically saying that, I mean, understanding that there are several other reasons why you think the indictment is or defective or the prosecution, but are you saying that the Department of Justice could have put forward this indictment and this wouldn't be a claim for you to, to pursue? Right. We are saying under the ECA, once the safe harbor date goes down, if you read this ECA and the Title III, as I've cited, the power goes back to the feds. They've given us power to have everything done by the safe harbor date. That's why the governor certifies it then. That's why in Bush versus Gore, the lawsuits had to be done by, um, in, in our case, being January uh, 8th. I don't know what it was back in 2000. And those cases talk about it. And so the authority in this case is delegated from the federal folks. It's not state generated authority. You can't vote for president as a state law issue. The feds say under the ECA, this is what the states can do. And the states have listed a few other things as I pointed out as to what it goes, what you can do. And I've cited to all that, that's all procedural. How they vote, where the votes go, who signs what, what has to be notarized, certified, isn't a state issue. Um, this isn't common law type stuff. This is pure federalism. Um, pure, um, the, the feds haven't given up that authority as far as it goes when you read it in conjunction with the 10th Amendment. And so once the safe harbor date comes, the power reverts back to the federal authorities because that's our cutoff date. On the 8th, everything's got to be done. And then on the 14th nationwide, the electors meet and vote how they will. And then bringing your claim more in line with what we've seen in other Supremacy Clause uh, opinions, it seems to me that you're saying this is an implied preemption versus an express, or I, I, I think, think you it, were saying all of the above. I just want to clarify that. Right. I think I'm saying all of the above, because if you look at the ECA as it is, once the 8th of, Jan of December came and went in 2020, Your Honor, my position would be structural because they've taken the power back. The delegation, the limited delegation that I've cited to you is taken back. If the court doesn't like that one, then there's the pervasiveness because the 1890 case going back where they're talking about congressional seats, um, they also say you, the perjured person in the 1890 case couldn't be prosecuted by the state that reversed his conviction. It should be a federal case because you're talking about Congress people being elected and who actually won that election. But if it was express, there would have to be a specific section in here that we could point to that say this is where the state is prevented from getting into this, right? Um, I don't think there's anything I can point to in the ECA that says it's express. It's essentially, it's two pages. So I'm saying if you look at the implication and you look at the federal codes under Title III that goes, and then you look at what Georgia's done, there's nothing in Georgia that says you have to do it X, Y, and Z way. I've cited the five statutes that talk about how the electors, how they can actually be nominated. That's essentially what we do. We do some procedural things, but there's nothing in there that says this is how you vote. This is where you send it. This is what you do. And so those are all learning experiences because I didn't even know what Title 21 in the state book was versus the federal book. And so I think it's implied. I can't say express, but the law de facto makes it an express issue because there's nothing under the state <clears throat> statutes that talk about these electors. And everything we have, Your Honor, allows for a second set of electors from the ECA and even Georgia code sections. It's just buried in there under that title I decided you. So I think in your reply, you, you use some a phrase here that essentially anything after the safe harbor deadline, any conduct is beyond the state's purview. So well, is, is your position then that anything involving the ECA cannot be charged by the state after the safe harbor date? If it stays within the safe Okay, if I'm going around shooting people because I want to protect, the, I can't claim the ECA because that specific crime hasn't been delegated down to me as far as that goes. The ECA delegates the 
ability to how to vote from the electors. So what we're being charged with is the electors got together and took an oath. That's illegal because now they're pretending to be government officers. Uh, there's a debate whether presidential electors are federal or not, as we sort of heard in federal court as far as the removal proceedings go. Um, I don't want to get into that. Then they actually voted, which they're saying that's an illegal vote, and they signed their name, which is forgery, and then they presented it to the governor, which was a false swearing as far as that goes. All that is the process that the ECA says we have to do. There's nothing in Georgia law that contradicts it. And that's why I'm saying for that limited purpose, I'm not being crazy and saying if I start beating women and doing all that stuff out there to try to get the ECA out there, I'm covered by all of it. It's just specific things that are related to anything to do vote. with electors after 12 a state has to say hands off. According to the ECA, that's what you have to do because none of this stuff is false. The problem is before we even get there, if you can have a second set of electors, how can it be illegal? The state statute itself says 1% if the McAfee Aurora ticket has 1%, we can submit our own electors. It's up to Congress to do it. <clears throat> you and I submitting our own electors, if we meet the definition of what a political party is in our state and we get the adequate what if we What if we don't meet that definition? We're the only two people in our party, but we're claiming that we got 1% and we submit it and we say we're entitled to be part of that slate. Well, we we do says, something that doesn't fall in line with the way we were supposed to do it. Right, but the law doesn't allow that, then it would never go anywhere because what we're doing is inherently violating both the state law that says how the electors get picked, because if we're not at 1%, which is what the state requires, we can't be a party. So at that point, technically, we've committed a state crime. But if we meet the criteria to be a party, then we can forward the electors. And that's why the ECA okay. at least five different times says. So let me let me jump on that, because it says, assuming you've added a fact that no, we did meet that 1%, right? Sure. Um, so essentially your argument is, as I take it, is that as a matter of, of law, that the indictment should be dismissed. I, I'm getting held up procedurally here, sure. um, where you're assuming certain facts that we haven't established yet in order to make the claim. It, it seems to me that the, these arguments might be procedurally just by the way the process is, is designed could be better received at, at the point of a directed verdict, but a pretrial phase, I, I'm just, uh, and the same issue is, is going to come up in, in the First Amendment claim as well. Sure. When you're adding facts like we just talked about, how can we determine that in a pretrial well, I, I guess situation? I, I'm not sure what facts necessarily I'm adding, Your Honor. What we, we have the indictment, and it says the second slate of electors are de facto illegal. When they nominated themselves, that was illegal. When they voted, it was illegal. When they signed their names, it was illegal. And when they sent it up to go to Congress, it was illegal. That's right square dead fact on the ECA. There's nothing I'm adding to this. This isn't a speaking demur or whatever the government wants to argue. This is the indictment. And what I'm saying is you have the case law. So technically, if you look at the indictment, I say guilty, you can say it's all this, but you have to read the ECA in context of this statute because the ECA says you can't do it as long as I stick within the four corners of the election process itself. Not that I went out and murdered somebody or tried to bribe people or do any of that kind of stuff. That's why I've cited the very limited cases that are out there. But the most important thing is Georgia law specifically tells you this is all Georgia can do. And there's nothing in the Georgia code that says after January, excuse me, December 8th, we had the power. And so if we look at the Bush v. Gore thing, that's sort of where it all got stuck back in, back in 2000. They passed the January 6th deadline. The lawsuits were out there. But the Supreme Court specifically said you can't keep recounting after January 6th, I think, in that case of 
I'm sorry, December 6th of that case back in 2000, because you'd be violating state law because the state doesn't have the authority to do any of that stuff. And that's why the recounts never happened in Florida past the safe harbor date. Um, it's incredibly confusing. There's essentially two or three cases on this whole thing, but it's the lack of law, at least in Georgia, that is what controls here. And I think procedurally, you have a right to say they stayed within this. If we did one of the crimes alleged outside what you think is a valid mm -hmm. election process, then it stays. Absolutely. You know, but also, last point I, I have for you is the, you say there's the safe harbor date and everything before that would be okay. If I remember correctly, every count against Mr. Chesbro has a range of the 6th to the 14th, I believe. Um, so how are we supposed to know, according to the language of the indictment itself, whether every one of these satisfies your pre-safe harbor uh, requirement? Well, the writing of the brief, I can take up with the First Amendment and some of the other RICO issues that we've talked about as far as you will have to decide, is it valid legal advice, much like the federal court in Eastman said it was valid legal advice being the November 18th memo. But in the indictment itself, I think, um, could I just pull the indictment here for a second? I'm just saying, as indicted, it has this range of dates, some of which fall before the safe harbor deadline that you've said is this line in the sand, right? Right, but with regards to the electors in our case, uh, at least on the substantive counts, we're 9, 11, 13, 15, 17, and 19, I think those six or seven, everything's on the 14th of December as far as that goes with regards to voting. If we then go into the um, RICO overt acts, almost everything well, we, we, no, based on what? Because it's a, it talks about it's a, we're charging a conspiracy, for example, in count nine, and the range is that a conspiracy formed between the sixth and the fourteenth. So, why do, how do, we, how can we just say that everything happened on the fourteenth? Okay, I'm saying everything happened on the fourteenth by reading the overt acts, non-predicate acts okay. that we're charged with, and the specific substantive counts. So, even if we want to quibble or disagree about the RICO thing, because there's something that says on the sixth, there's. Substantive counts, at least at a minimum, have to go based on where they're charged. The RICO issue, that's a different sort of a ball game. It's like, what exactly happened on the 6th that caused the conspiracy to go forward? We are not charged with any of the predicates. The predicates take place after the safe harbor date if we go through all the actual predicate counts, right? There's a hundred and something overt acts, only about 20 or 30 of those are predicate. And all the predicate acts are false swearing, um, um, forgery, those kinds of things, along with what happened in Coffee County. And I think they'd have a different position on it because after the 6th or 7th, you can't appoint a president anymore. All the votes could have been fraudulent. We figured it out on January 8th, it's too late to do that. And so I'm sure the Coffee County people will talk about their actions that happened after the um, Congress met. But my point to the court is all the substantive counts in our overt acts and predicate acts are post safe harbor date. And if nothing else, I would just say, at least in the alternative, we should succeed on substantive counts if the court says that two-day hook gets you on the on the RICO part. But I think I'll have some other arguments for that if I can save some time for rebuttal. Sure. Thank you. All right. Who do we have on the state side? Um, it'll be me, uh, right. Judge Will Wooten. And surprisingly, I don't have a PowerPoint today. Yeah, fair enough. Um, I'm going to keep this brief. Well, can we can we jump in uh, uh, and then I'll let you have at it but i want to focus on this idea so the state i think primarily responds back not only saying the supremacy clause analysis doesn't really apply here but as a this is a, a speaking demur and we can't go that route so even with a, a special demur we look within the four corners of the document right 
Yes, Judge. So if we look solely to the document, and then we've also got a law in the books that says um, this is how the ECA works, can we reach the substantive issues of law and say the law as interpreted a certain way could not uh, be a crime as alleged in this indictment? State's position is absolutely not. All right. Um, why not? Um, well, I don't, again, I don't want to give the full analysis because I don't want to waste the course time because I don't think this motion is really going anywhere, frankly. Uh, but as the court pointed out, preemption is either express or implied. Um, there's been some argument, it was a little unclear what the other side's position is as to express preemption, but they've pointed to no statute, um, no constitutional provision that expressly says the states shall not prosecute any state crimes related to the Electoral College. That's what express preemption would be that doesn't exist. So moving to the implied uh, preemption, as the other side pointed out, there's a couple of ways that the court can find that there is implied preemption. First is field preemption. That's where the federal statute kind of occupies the entire field. And so I kind of want to hit on an inconsistency in the other side's argument. They point to all these other Georgia state statutes that have to do with the electoral college, you know, how electors are selected, how the governor has to tally the votes, et cetera. It's very clear from that alone that the field is not occupied fully by the federal, the federal law um, as a first issue. As a second issue, and again, we rely largely on what's in the brief and the cases that we've cited in the brief, but the case law says that as it relates to field preemption, what you look at first is what is the field? Um, and so the Electoral Count Act, the field there is how does Congress receive electoral college votes from the states? How do they determine which ones are the real ones? And how do they count them? Um, that's the field. The field for the Georgia criminal statutes that this defendant is charged under has nothing to do with that. They say nothing about how do you count votes? How do you submit votes? How do you determine you know, which votes to count? The Georgia criminal statutes say nothing about that. They're entirely different fields. They're fundamentally different bodies of law. And so it's clear that there is no field preemption. Um, the other thing that I would point out on that judge is the other side has said, again, an, in, an inconsistency or an inaccuracy that Georgia law kind of foresees this idea of multiple slates of electors because um, 21-2-499-B says that the governor and the secretary of state have to look at the slates of electors, figure out how many people voted for each, and then determine who the winner is. It's referring to multiple slates of electors in that statute because it's pointing out that the state government has the responsibility to look at each slate that's on the ballot and figure out who the winner is. There can only be one winner, and in this case, the state government did that, determined that it was the, the Biden um, electors that won, and then that's what a certificate of, certificate of ascertainment was um, created that, that acknowledged that fact. Um, additionally, the other side says something about the electoral college or the electoral count act allows for multiple slates of electors. No, it does not. There is reference to multiple um, electoral college votes in the electoral count act from the perspective of what is Congress to do to figure out which slate to vote, but just because, or I'm sorry, which slate to count just because the Electoral Count Act foresaw that people might submit false or you know, unauthorized slates of electors or electoral college votes, that doesn't mean that the Electoral Count authorizes that and says that this is okay to do. It provides instruction to Congress as to what to do in that, in that circumstance. And again, 
Electoral Count Act says nothing about states can't prosecute fraud crimes related to the Electoral Count Act after December 8th. That's frankly made up out of thin air. Um, another thing that, I, or moving on from field preemption, as the other side pointed out or alluded to, the court can look for conflict preemption. So is it possible for someone to comply with both laws? In this case, absolutely yes. As we pointed out in our brief, the actual electors for the state of Georgia demonstrate that. Um, they complied with the Georgia state law that was in accordance with federal law, the Electoral Count Act, and they didn't commit any fraud in doing so. Um, and I try to think of examples of where there might be some kind of conflict preemption. The best I can come up with, Judge, is if there was some Georgia law that said, you know, under no circumstances shall the electors for the state of Georgia submit their votes to the president of the Senate. That clearly conflicts with the Electoral Count Act that says that's what the electors have to do. That would clearly be an example of preemption, but that's not what we have here at all. There's, there's nothing that's in direct conflict. I don't know where this idea of December 8th and Safe Harbor, you know, divesting the states of the ability to do anything if there's fraud in, in the electoral uh, college voting process. I, I don't know where that comes from. There's been no support for that other than here's the Electoral Count Act and this is what we say that it means. But there's nothing, there's nothing in, the, um, in the briefs or in the argument that addresses that. Um, Judge, that's all I've got. Um, I, actually, I did want to mention one other point. The other side said that the federal court, um, the, the district court of the street took up this issue. The court did take up this issue in, a little bit in the context of removal and completely rejected it. Said that is not applicable at all, that that interpretation is not correct, that these, you know, the, the quote, alternate slate of electors, they never were electors. And so none of this applies. Um, so with that, I'll take any other questions that the court has. Thank you. Mr. Roy. Put up the slides again, because I, I have no idea how to respond, because it seems like we're talking past each other on two different cases. They say the governor certification determines who won, and that's the winner, and they counted it that the absurdity of that statement under the statute you start the legal challenges after the governor certifies who they think may have won they can vote for anybody that they want that's when the process starts it, it, it's like a just it makes my head hurt because we keep talking about the same thing from their pleadings the governor certification is essentially meaningless under federal law that's the whole point It's just a tiebreaker that starts the challenges in court that's what was happening here so when they say who won is decided by the governor it's completely false congress decides who the winner is if there's multiple slates of electors i am sorry that we haven't had eca challenges in the 140 years that's gone on this is a unique case the only thing I can tell you is we looked at Hawaii, even though it can be distinguished in some faces, but multiple slates of electors, three slates of electors went up in Hawaii. Had the governor's government's theory, and they said in federal court, had the Democrats done what they did, they would have indicted them had Fonnie Willis been the DA, Nixon would have won Hawaii. And the whole skew the country could be different theoretically as to what happened because the Democrats did an alternate slate of electors in that case. So when they say the ACA doesn't allow alternate slates of electors, and I don't know what they're reading. It talks about it five different times. And if you look at the history, and I'm sure you have, the whole point of the ECA was multiple slates of electors were coming up to Congress year after year after year. And that's why the ECA was crafted in the way and said, if you get multiple slates of electors, this is what you do. 
And in 2022, they corrected it again because there was still mass confusion. They say we don't cite any statutes because there aren't any. The Georgia statutes that apply are procedural. They don't say how you're supposed to vote. They say no electoral college case law exists because it's never come up before except Hawaii. And they did the exact same thing that the Trump people did in this case. They filed a separate set of electors. So I gave you the Georgia law. What allows you to force a separate set of electors? 1% of the vote, if it's confirmed, you can then select it. And if you go back to the second slide, please. Next one, keep going, keep going. Um, I keep going. If we look at 21-2-11, when Georgia talks about, as the DA tries to implore to you, that we control how electors do whatever, it specifically says in the statute, as Congress has directed. That is a direct quote under Georgia, because we just do procedural things. The voting issue is solely a Congress issue. And the safe harbor date is in the ECA, and it says that's when everything's due. Otherwise, we get the power back. That's why there's structural, that's why there's field, and that's why there's conflict preemption. You take your pick of a trifecta in this situation. To me, it's structural after the 8th of 2020, I'm sorry, December 8th of um, 2020, as far as that goes. So I apologize, I don't have any idea what the government's argument is. And if we needed case law and everything, it cuts against them because due process requires that you can't be prosecuted for a novel theory under the law. It has to be put on notice. And if the ECA is that vague, you can't just prosecute us because you feel like it. Everything we did was in compliance with the ECA following those rules, and that's not state fraud because it's not even fraud. If you can have a second slate of electors, you can de facto not have a crime. Thank you. All right. I'll uh, take that under advisement, written order to follow. And I think you've already provided the PowerPoint as well. Uh, yes, Sean. Do you want a hard copy or is it okay? No, that's fine. Okay, let's move on and talk about the First Amendment. Yes, Sean. the PowerPoint for this one, so I'll just have to bore you with my. Not at all. Uh, I think most of the issues have been taken up, and essentially the government's argument is everything's a crime so the first amendment doesn't apply and if that was the case i would agree but if we piggyback on and adopt what i just said regarding the eca and what it says i, I think that all sort of goes out the window um i would correct the state in my reply brief on three of their cases that they're trying to use um to say that uh, you know we're wrong let's look at um Alvarez, it says, indeed, the US Supreme Court has even said that false statements are protected and inevitable in an open and vigorous expression of views in public and private conversations. Those are statements. In this case, we're talking about um, the memos and things that he's written. Um, we then, as I've cited, go into, even when considering some instances of defamation and fraud, the court has been careful to instruct that falsity alone may not suffice to bring the speech outside the First Amendment. The statement must be a knowing or reckless falsehood. And um, that was under Alvarez as well. I think I've cited that out there. So I think you have it in our reply brief. And lastly, under Eastman versus Thompson, which is the only real case that we have here, um, one of the memos that was looked at under Eastman's uh, disbarment proceedings by the federal court in California, they specifically said that the memo that this man had written was in anticipation of litigation. I don't know if work product were used, but they gave ex explanations. But in that case, the court found that Eastman 
may have leaked that memo and therefore doesn't get those protections. But we're not Eastman, and there's no evidence that anybody from the Trump side has ever leaked anything. Um, but that's getting into another uh, brief. But as far as the First Amendment issue goes, it's all protected material under sort of that case law. And the cases that the government cited was Nordahl, N-O-R-D-A-H-L. Um, and in that case, they're citing it for a proposition, which is a cherry pick sentence out of a footnote in that case. And I know I've been good with footnotes and the court has sort of pointed that out, but I would just point out that that's not the holding in, in the Nordahl case, as the government tries to say in Yates, which the government cited, they're citing as the holding something out of the dissent from Justice Black. That's not accurate. Um, under Alexander, as they cite to, they're talking about criminal and civil sanctions and not a RICO charge itself for the crime, but sanctions, whether those fall under the First Amendment protections. Um, I, I think it all speaks for itself. The issue is going to be the court has to look at, um, as we put in our uh, pleading, there are a ton of emails that are sent out to other lawyers and high ranking individuals in the Trump campaign that we represented. Um, and so the court has to see on a in-camera case-by-case basis, I guess, is anything subject to the crime fraud. The only guidance I have to give you is you have the Eastman case out there, and it specifically talks about at least one of the three memos that he wrote um, that is work product, or excuse me, uh, in anticipation. Well, are we getting more into the, the third motion? I thought we were talking solely, I think you made an as-applied First Amendment challenge. Right, as-applied, right. what I'm saying, it's hard to sort of keep it a little separate. The point is, okay. we made these, right? What's an exception to the First Amendment, right? crime fraud issues come up there if it's you can't advise somebody to commit a crime and hide behind the first amendment what i've cited is falsity depending on however you define that isn't sufficient under it it's got to go way beyond that even they said you know somewhat of a recklessness as far as making false statements up um, isn't going to go there otherwise we could prosecute everybody the issue then becomes at one point does the first amendment not apply is it purely a crime and so it feeds into what mr grubman's going to argue is if you don't see the legal advice for what it is as far as their speech. I mean, first we have the legal advice protections, right? Then we have the First Amendment as an alternative to say, you can say these things and you can put it out there. There's nothing illegal if you actually read the memos that they've got. We've got case citations, law review articles, learned treatises. Everything's been posted in there. On every sentence, there's almost a citation. I wish the government would have would not have put the stuff I was challenging as attorney-client protected into the into the world i know a lot of that stuff may already be out there but if you read it it actually deals his statements to me are legal but then they're also first amendment protected and i don't think it goes way past that reckless standard where the first amendment um, wouldn't apply to these cases because we're being so reckless with the facts in the case so i think well so this is one again like i'm kind of alluded to is you've you've reined it in by saying this is an as applied first amendment challenge just for this motion yes you and so can you point to any other as applied First Amendment cases that happened in a, in a pretrial context? Because everyone I've seen in Georgia, whether it was challenging terroristic threats or the anti-mask law or sure. everything else, they had a record to go on. We don't have that here. We don't have that here, but you actually have the exhibits as part of the other cases, right? The exhibits and everything are in the indictment. They cite to the emails that we're talking about. They cite to one of the three memos I think that they're talking about as overt acts and then possibly leading to the under predicate advice that we gave advice on how to do the vote and how to do all these other things. So I think there's a slight difference in that you don't need to 
listen to all the evidence, go back to a directed verdict stage. At this point, if you just look at the indictment and the things that they're saying, we're saying, uh, obviously one of the factors was attorney-client, but the otherwise it's First Amendment protected. If you look at the things that they reference and cite to in, the, in their own indictment, are those so reckless false statements that it goes beyond the First Amendment protections? So I'm not asking the court to go beyond the four corners of the indictment, but they actually cite you know, instances in there. And I'm but, saying- But so much of what is reckless Yes. Is a question of intent. Right? I, I would agree. So, I, I, again, I just struggle how we're supposed to. This, is, again, seems like something for a directed verdict, sure. an argument, but we haven't had a deposition in the record. We haven't, I mean, I think now you've introduced an affidavit, but that kind of challenge, the give and take, that hasn't happened. Well, I mean, all I can sort of go back to is I know this necessarily doesn't apply. Like if we do justification, for example, you know, we talk about we can deal with it up front because the stress of the trial and all that. You have a lot of these facts before you. You can expand. We can contradict. We can do whatever. I'm just saying, look at the indictment. It says he says this in this memo or he says this in this email. Um, take aside the whole attorney client issue is saying those things or emailing those things a violation or a exception to the First Amendment protections that have listed out here what things, you know, go around the First Amendment and the state's response is mostly, you know, the criminal type aspect of it all. I, I don't see how the court can't make that challenge. Otherwise, we could literally try anything. As far as that goes, this isn't a terroristic threat as in when he says, I'm going to kill me, did he really mean that? Is it this? This is purely legal advice that's given in the indictment. And the question then becomes, is it so reckless and criminal based on the four corners of the indictment that you can't make a decision on it versus forcing us to go through millions of dollars of expenses in a trial um, and then get the result we need at the directed verdict stage, which obviously the court knows will be a pretty big directed verdict motion coming um, if we get to that point. And so I don't have anything clear to give you because we're in a case of essentially first impression as far as the politics and attorney legal advice goes. And we're sort of all kind of making it up as we go along, trying to interpret the best that we can from the legal treatises and articles. And I try to cite you the best that I can. And at the same point, the government's citing you things. And we've gone back to when we first started with the speed trial, we don't have to give you discovery. And then that was all wrong, right? So I'm giving you the cases that they're citing for things. That, that's why I ask, please, I know it's a lot, but if the court reads it, you'll understand. I'm trying to be as open as I can, giving you all the butt sees and footnotes and everything good or bad. But I don't see how we get the trial based on the old motion, but here, I mean, because at that point, what attorney is going to give advice to anybody if it can be looked at something by any, a DA that says otherwise? So you go back to Hawaii, and if you look at the transcript from the, the federal court, they specifically said, had that happened in Hawaii, we would have indicted those people. And then Nixon would be president, arguably. So just because you don't like the person doesn't mean you get to prosecute him. So, and, and Mr. Roy, I can certainly appreciate, you know, the situation we're in and, and the candor that so many of these things are uncharted, uh, but what I'm just, I, I keep coming back to in a lot of these pretrial motions is the appropriate role, uh, what the jury is supposed to be doing, what I'm supposed to be doing. And so much of this is, it seems like uh, both sides are eager to dive right into it and, and start doing battle, but uh, all, all too often that doesn't seem like what the role is via pretrial motion. And, and it, is it inefficient? Absolutely. Should there be maybe a defensive summary judgment standard? Perhaps. But I've not seen that. I, I'm not disagreeing with you at all. I'm just simply saying, if we 
sort of shut the blinders on and look at a, just at the indictment kind of thing. You look at the language, that, that's all I'm getting at. I'm saying I totally agree and understand where you are. But we are about to have a trial where the jury is going to end up being constitutional law professors by the time we're done because all the facts are the law. And so I'm maybe trying to short circuit it because you're smart enough to know what's going on. We've had the Tenth Amendment issues, we have the federalism issues. Um, I, I can't give you anything else. I mean, I wish I was a great case that said, oh, no, in 1892, this happened, but it, it just, just hasn't come up. And the <laughs> one example that we have, I've sort of talked about, and I've told you my deficiencies, and I've cited all the law review articles I can find. All right. Uh, Mr. Rafferty, did you want to add uh, anything to this one? So I want to start out with some, again, as the court pointed out in the reply, uh, the defendant kind of tailored the argument down to an as-applied challenge and made a couple concessions. First, the defendant concedes that speech that constitutes fraud, harmful lies that threaten to deceive the government, or speech that's integral to criminal conduct is not protected by the First Amendment. Um, that's in their reply at page two. And additionally, they concede that the statutes that the, that the defendants charged under are not facially unconstitutional. Um, it's an as-applied um, challenge to these statutes. That's uh, in the reply at page four. As applied challenge or justice, whether a statute is unconstitutional on the facts of a particular case or to a particular party, but essentially the analysis is the same, is the way that the state is prosecuting this defendant violating the First Amendment. Um, and I think it's important to point out that the defendant is not charged in this indictment with any offenses that prescribe speech or expression. As the court pointed out, um, a lot of the cases, most if not all of the cases, and there are just a handful that, that uh, present an as-applied First Amendment challenge to a criminal prosecution are cases involving expression, um, uh, terroristic threats, um, intimidation of a court officer, et cetera. But here, every single count is a conspiracy violation. So count one, violation of the Georgia RICO Act um, under the C prong, which is conspiracy and endeavor. Count nine, conspiracy to commit impersonating a public officer. Count 11, conspiracy to commit forgery in the first degree. Count 13, conspiracy to commit false statements and writings. Count 15, conspiracy to commit filing false documents. 17, conspiracy to commit forgery in the first degree. And 19, conspiracy to commit false statements and writings. And I point that out, again, because all of those charges are conspiracy violations. Um, for count one under 1614.4c, it shall be unlawful for any person to conspire or endeavor to violate subsection A or subsection B. And then the remaining charges are under 1648, um, just a general Georgia conspiracy statute, persons uh, guilty of that when they conspire with another person to commit any crime. And so again, I point that out because the heart of a conspiracy charge is not expression, but it's an agreement. And so in Darville versus the state 2011 Supreme Court case 289, uh, Georgia 698, a conspiracy may be shown by proof of an agreement between two or more persons to commit a crime. The essence of a conspiracy is an agreement. Drain versus the state 265, Georgia 255, a 1995 case. And again, this concept is very old. We go back to Lumpkin versus the state. 176 Georgia 446, a 1933 case that says, and this is still good law, it's been cited over and over again, but a conspiracy consists of a corrupt agreement between two or more persons to do an unlawful act. And this is crucial. This agreement may be established by direct proof or by inference as a deduction from conduct. And I'm going to get into that in just a minute. But again, the crimes are all about entering into an unlawful agreement to violate the criminal laws of the state of Georgia the speech or the other expressive conduct 
of the co-conspirators that they are charged with in substantive violations is not um, the meat of what this defendant is charged with. And as our Supreme Court, uh, United States Supreme Court held as recently as this year in United States versus Hansen, 143 Supreme Court, 1932, not expressive conduct does not implicate the First Amendment at all. I'm going to turn to the statutes. Um, and as the, as the court pointed out, a lot of these arguments go to things like intent. Um, a jury can find that a, that a defendant or this defendant intended to enter into these unlawful agreements or conspiracies upon consideration of the words, conduct, demeanor, motive, and all other circumstances connected with the act for which the accused is prosecuted. That's 16.26. And I point that out to demonstrate to the court that our law contemplates that in proving a crime, you can use the defendant's words or expression or conduct or demeanor against them. And in no way does that violate the First Amendment if it's used to prove the violation. And so the state will prove the defendant's participation in these conspiracies primarily through his conduct. Some of that, but not all of that conduct is speech. The defendant contends uh, that the sole basis for alleging and proving that he was part of any of the conspiracies charged is his legal analysis and advice. Um, that is not so. And as the court pointed out, um, almost all of the cases, I could find one where there was a pretrial appeal on this, but almost all of the cases were post-conviction. There was a full record. It gave the court something to make a decision on. In the one case that was an interlocutory appeal, um, the facts were stipulated to. It was a Facebook post where someone threatened to, to like shoot up their school or something like that. So the facts weren't an issue. Um, again, for the purpose of building a record, um, I'd like to just go through the indictment and point out how the conduct that forms the basis of these charges, or, or the acts that form the basis of these charges is conduct. Some of it is speech, some of it is not. So we start with count one, act 47, and I'll move through this quickly, but on or about the 10th day of December, 2020, the defendant sent an email uh, to Georgia Republican Party Chairman David Schaefer and, other, and an unindicted co-conspirator. Um, in the email, he stated that certain individuals associated with the Trump campaign asked him to help coordinate with the other five contested states and help with logistics of the electors and other states, hopefully joining and casting their votes. So the way that it's alleged in the indictment, part of that is speech, but part of that is the defendant admitting that he's doing more than just providing legal advice. He's involved in setting up of logistics for these meetings that occurred in multiple states on December 14th of 2020. And we've included in the PowerPoint um, the email that that refers to. And again, he says, um, like I said, he, he was asked by the Trump campaign to help with the logistics of uh, making sure that people meet and cast these votes. That is not speech. That is not expression. That is not legal advice. Uh, Count 1, Act 48. The defendant sends another email to David Schaefer where he provides documents that are to be used at the meeting um, on December 14th of 2020. This is that email. Again, he says he's following up um, and providing these draft documents that he created. This is not speech. This is not legal advice. This is not expression. Um, he's providing instructions on how to fill out those documents, how to mail them. He even gets as granular as saying that you need to send them by registered mail. Um, these are the attachments, the documents that were on that email. And then, of course, they end up being the documents that were submitted by the co-conspirators. So the, the defendant created these documents and distributed them, not speech, not expression. Um, and I'll move through quickly, count one act 49, similar thing in Arizona. 
um, distributing documents, count one, act 50, similar thing in Wisconsin. Again, providing those instructions, distributing those documents, um, count one, act 51, similar thing in Nevada. Count one, act 52, uh, we go back to Nevada again. So, you know, and again, and I wanna point out, defendant contends that all he did was provide legal advice None of these people that these emails go to are his clients. So I don't know how that could be construed as legal advice if they're not his clients. Um, Act 53, again, same thing as it relates to Pennsylvania. Essentially the same emails are distributed out to all these people. Act 58, again, uh, talking about the purpose of sending these things in is to provide the opportunity to debate election irregularities in Congress and keep alive the possibility that the votes could be flipped to Trump and Biden. Not speech, not expression, not legal advice. Act 59, uh, more, more emails, documents sent to Arizona. Again, those same instructions. This is how you address them. Make sure you send them by registered mail. These are all instructions on how to submit these fraudulent documents. Um, count one, Act 60. Again, providing more documents to more people, this time back to the Trump campaign. Uh, count one, Act 61 more instructions um, and documents that this defendant created being sent back to the Trump campaign. Count one, Act 64. Um, this one was a meeting. So this was actually meeting together with co-conspirators. Again, not expressive, not, not uh, speech, not legal advice. Count one, Act 69, another email distributing documents for New Mexico. Count one, Act 72, another email. Um, this again is providing instructions saying that the mayor, Rudy Giuliani, wants to keep all this quiet until the voting is done. Again, not legal advice. This is talking about a political process, the meeting of these fake electors, how they don't want anyone to know about it. Um, a couple, of, and, I, and I'm gonna wrap up quickly here, Judge, but a couple additional considerations. The state is not required to prove that the defendant committed any overt acts. I think that's significant because while we do reference certain overt acts in the indictment, and some of those are speech, that's not a fatal issue with the indictment because we don't have to allege any overt acts whatsoever. Um, as we've discussed in prior hearings, each actor in a conspiracy is responsible for the overt actions undertaken by all the other co-conspirators in furtherance of the conspiracy, Pasha versus the state, 273, Georgia App 788, 2005 decision. That was a RICO case. Um, I also kind of want to point back to something that the court pointed out um, on the on the other motion, but again, count one, I believe the first date, talking about this safe harbor thing, the first date is November the 4th. And again, you take out all these defendants over at acts, he's still liable for all of the other co-conspirators over at acts. So it doesn't matter if you strip out these post-December 8th acts. Um, additionally, over at acts and furtherance of a conspiracy do not have to be crimes. It's not necessary that an overt act taken by itself even be criminal in character. Um, that's from Yates. Uh, 354 U.S. 298-1957. And essentially, Judge, the defendant's motion should be denied. He's not charged with any crimes that prescribe expressive conduct. He's charged with all conspiracy crimes. Non-expressive conduct does not implicate the First Amendment, and the state will prove his participation in those conspiracies through his conduct. Some of that is speech, and that's entirely permissible. It happens in just about every strong criminal case, you use the defendant's words and actions against them, and that's never raised any constitutional issue. And I'll take any questions that the court has. Thank you, Mr. Wooten. Uh, 
Judge, I hate to say this, but I feel like, again, we're sort of talking past each other. They're talking about conspiracy and that you're responsible for everybody. But actually, if you read the case law, what the law on conspiracy says is you're not, you don't need to have full knowledge of what your co-defendant's doing, but there's a certain amount of knowledge that is required. That's for tomorrow. I'm not really sure why it's normal here. So we start off with, there's no speech or expression or anything else. And then we go with, well, we're gonna use his own words and conduct and expressions and emails against him. All these acts that are listed deal solely with the emails out there. And you are an IG, you tell your clients, these are the rules and this is how you're supposed to do it. So when he's saying, you gotta fill it out this way, do it in triplicate this way, mail it this way. That's what the ECA issue was that we just talked about. That is what a lawyer is supposed to do when giving advice to his clients on how to fill out their tax forms or how to fill out your license application. I mean, that's the core crux of what a lawyer does. So again, I, I don't know how to respond to this. The First Amendment issue is you can't just say it's a crime and we'll prove First Amendment later because then you have no First Amendment protection because you go to trial every time. Just because you say it's a crime, does that mean your First Amendment goes away and we got to figure it out at a directed verdict motion? It's not an affirmative defense necessarily where you can sort of litigate it and the jury decides. You get to decide up front based on the four corners. Their own acts that are listed talk about he sent an email explaining how to fill out the applications for the voter stuff. He sent an email saying how you mail it in. He sent an email saying, this is how we're gonna do the logistics mm -hmm. of something. That's inherent First Amendment speech. Otherwise, we literally would have no protection if everybody could go to trial just because the DA gets a wild hair and says, I find that to be criminal. So uh, I don't wanna take up any more time. We're just going in circles. I mean, the First Amendment is the First Amendment is the First Amendment as to what he said. Just read what they've listed in there. How is there an exception to the First Amendment in the four corners of the indictment? Thank you. All right. And then the last thing we had was the motion to exclude legal memoranda and correspondence. I, I know we kind of started talking about it, but now we can address it full on. I think specifically it's been five documents have been highlighted. Mr. Grubman, were you taking this one up? Okay, Mr. Grubman. Good afternoon, Your Honor. Uh, here to talk about our motion to exclude any legal memorandum and affiliated correspondence for attorney-client privilege and work product. I did want to clarify something that the state said in their response brief and that Your Honor just mentioned before we took our restroom break, which is this is not just about five documents. Um, as we make clear in our motion, it's about all documents, whether emails, texts, or memos that are privileged. Um, we, clear, we used five examples in our motion because those were the ones that were cited in the indictment. But we clarified in our motion, we're asking for the same um, relief for all documents protected by privilege or work product. And quite honestly, Your Honor, the vast majority, I know there's quite a bit of overlap, and I'm going to try to avoid the overlap with Mr. Aurora's First Amendment arguments, but there is some inevitable overlap. And the vast majority of evidence against Mr. Chesbor, we would argue, consists of emails, texts, and memos. And the majority of those emails, texts, and memos were to two categories of people. The first one is folks associated with the Trump campaign, which was Mr. Chesborough's client. I know that is something that the state challenges, and I'll address that in a moment. But Mr. Chesborough's client was the Trump campaign. I think that is um, clear. And the folks he was talking to, for the most part, were not only members of the Trump campaign, but very upper echelon members of the Trump campaign that were. Um, 
were put forth as members of the Trump campaign to be his <clears throat> points of contact. And when you are representing an organization, you do talk to people and you don't necessarily represent those people. But if you're talking to those people in their role as either an employee or an agent of your client, then those, um, those communications are privileged. And then the other example of who he's talking to are other lawyers. So all the folks that are basically listed, um, I'll just name some names. You have, um, you have Rudy Giuliani, you have Josh Finlay, you have several other people. They're all attorneys for the Trump campaign. Now, first question is, was Mr. Chesborough even acting as an attorney for the Trump campaign? And quite honestly, Your Honor, I'm not trying to engage in, um, I'm not trying to, I was very surprised we'll just say when I heard that the state does not think that is even a fact that um, the, the court could rely on. I'd like to pull up a reply brief that the state filed back when they were trying to get Mr. Chesborough to come before the special purpose grand jury um, because it makes clear that they agree um, if, if that can happen and it's okay if it can't, but they make clear that Mr. Chesborough was acting in his role as attorney and even acknowledge in that response brief, you'll see that while the majority or a lot of what he talks about might be protected by privilege, they just don't think all of it is. If you can go up, go up to one, I think. I'll just have to look <laughs> at it a second. Further, the district attorney agrees that certain information known to the witness may be protected by both the attorney-client privilege and the duty of confidentiality. Still, it must be noted, blah, blah, blah. Essentially, they say not all of the information implicates privilege, and therefore, um, we can still ask him certain questions. But the clear implication here, Your Honor, is that even the district attorney acknowledged in this publicly filed pleading, he was acting as an attorney. So as a threshold question, every, I mean, the first memo they cite, the first memo they cite in their, in their indictment is a November 18th memo from Mr. Chesborough to another lawyer. And the only reason I feel comfortable speaking about this, I don't want to be accused of waiving it is because it's already out there. And the state was nice enough to include it on their response brief. But the first memo he writes says on the top, privilege and confidential. And it, and <laughs> I mean, to I don't know what the other alternative is. I mean, You're talking I guess about the November 18th. Yes, sir. Okay. Sorry. So and, and maybe just by way of proffer, since I don't have yes, the, the benefit of the discovery or the background like you do. I, I know in the First Amendment motion, you said that he's approached by a former colleague, a judge asked to provide some research. You know, essentially, what right. is it? What is the moment when you're saying he crosses the threshold and becomes? Oh, the moment that phone call happened. That's what lawyers do. I'm called all the time. Hey, Scott, can you provide some research? And it's not because they're calling me as their accountant or their friend. They're calling me as their lawyer. Lawyers provide research. Lawyers write memos. So the moment Jim Jim Trupas, James Trupas, who goes by Judge Trupas up in Wisconsin, picked up the phone and said, Ken. You're an election law scholar. You worked on this in Bush v. Gore for the Gore campaign. Can you please help with some research? From that moment on, he was an attorney. Now, is that, is that because the judge is part of the campaign? Yeah. Well, no, the judge was an attorney for the campaign. And the judge clearly was an attorney for the campaign. In fact, I'll tell you, there are pleadings in November of 2020, December 2020, 
in the Wisconsin courts, which is where Mr. Chesborough was really doing a lot of the work at first, where his name's on the brief as an attorney for the Trump campaign. And there is no, I will tell you, there is no engagement letter, but the law is absolutely clear. There doesn't have to be. He was an attorney from that moment on. So I hope to just be able to move past that part. I think there's clearly, generally speaking, I know there's still an argument as to whether everything he did and said was in his role as attorney, but hopefully it can be accepted by everyone now that he was an attorney. Now, they put up a lot of emails that talk about things like logistics. And they say, well, how could a lawyer talk about logistics? Your Honor, I'm not trying, trying to be flippant, but 98% of what I do as a lawyer, unfortunately, is talking about logistics. And if you pull up, and you don't even have to do it, Robert, because if you pull up the documents where he's talking about logistics, the state skips the part about what the logistics of what? The logistics of the Electoral Counts Act. <laughs> So clearly logistics is part of a legal, um, you know, a lawyer's legal job. All of these, pull up the December 13th email from Mr. Chesborough to Mr. Giuliani. And this is a, you know, cited in the, in, in the brief or in the indictment, and it's apparently a controversial email, but I want to pull it up, December 13th. Yep. I really wish we just had one of those old school, you know, Go down a little bit. All right, stop right there. This is the beginning of Mr. Chesborough's email memo to Rudy Giuliani on December 13th. And for those of you I know Judge is familiar with, but for anyone who's not familiar with these citations in the paragraph that says, I have not delved into the historical record, right? These citations at the end are what? They're law review articles. This is a legal memo. There is, and it might be controversial advice. And you know what? I'm not admi admitting this, but it might even be incorrect legal advice. God knows I've given some in my career, unfortunately. This is a legal memo. All of the other emails that they, you know, he's reaching out about logistics, again, in all of the states. So they use Schaefer as an example, and they also reference, and I agree with them, that that email that Mr. Um, Chesborough sent to Mr. Schaefer in Georgia is essentially duplicated in five other states around the country. But it was the same exact email. In fact, I think it was literally copied and pasted with just the name of the state that was different. But it's about the logistics of here's what you have to fill out. In fact, I was glad that my colleague on, on the state side, Mr. Wooten, pointed out the, because um, it's actually something I'm going to talk a lot about in trial, I'll give them a heads up for it, talked about how granular the advice was. Mr. Chesborough saying, you have to send this stuff via first class mail, not FedEx, <laughs> not registered mail. Not Why? Not because Mr. Chesborough says so, because the Electoral Count Act says so. This is an extremely complicated statute. And the fact of the matter is that everything he sent was legal advice. Now, of course, we'll talk in a few minutes, Your Honor about I think what the real crux of this argument is going to be, which is whether there's an exception to privilege. But to start with the premise, these things have the kind of prima facie case of privilege. Let's talk before I get to into crime fraud, which again, I think is going to be the most important, just talk about waiver for a moment. And there were a couple of arguments, you know, first of all, this is such a weird case in that we're trying to keep out evidence 
that we're looking at and that, you know, every housewife in Kansas has seen on, you know, Fox News or whatever. Uh, but the, the fact of the matter is, unless there is evidence that the privilege holder, and I want to be very clear who the privilege holder is here, Trump campaign, not Mr. Chesborough, not anyone in this room, the Trump campaign is the privilege holder, and Mr. Wooten even acknowledged that in his response brief. So the privilege holder has to be have, have been found to waive privilege, and they can do so expressly or through actions, of course, inconsistent with privilege. So, for example, if there was a shred of evidence, which there's not, that the Trump campaign itself uh, leaked these things to the press or whoever it was, we would be arguing something different. That would be an issue. In fact, that kind of came up in the Eastman case. Eastman case is so interesting because the judge there found this does not fall under crime fraud exception, but found that it was waived. But in there, there was evidence that the court kind of referenced to talk about, there was evidence to suggest Mr. Eastman himself set, you know, waived this stuff. And there, of course, the argument is, well, you can't use it, you know, as a as a sword and then also as a shield. But there is no evidence. And I can absolutely guarantee you as an officer of the court that Mr. Chesborough ever leaked this. In fact, the evidence will show if the judge needs an evidence, if the court needs an evidentiary hearing, I don't know. But the evidence will show that every step of the way, every step of the way, and I hope the state will agree with this because they were there and it's in writing, Mr. Chesborough maintained privilege. He got subpoenaed to be called before the special purpose grand jury. And as on the vice of legal counsel, he objected on the basis of privilege. He, um, he asserted privilege when he was interviewed for the January 6th committee, which I can say, cause it's all on Google, you can Google it for over and over and over, he asserted privilege and he's always inserted privilege. And even more important, we have one communication from the Trump campaign back in September of 2022, when Mr. Chesborough um, was figuring out can what can he say and what can he say? Because his hands were tied. He's a lawyer, can't say anything he wants. And that email from the Trump campaign, which I would, I would prefer to show the court um, in camera if appropriate and needed, specifically says it's for a lawyer for the Trump campaign and says at this time, no privilege has been waived, and we instruct Mr. Chesborough to maintain all privileges. And I am not aware of any time that the Trump campaign has done elsewhere, uh, otherwise. In fact, I just saw on Twitter today, and this is going to be relevant, I promise, because I think it proves the point, that a judge up in Washington, D.C., in, in President Trump's D.C. case, said, you have to make a decision, President Trump, by December or October 18th, whether you're going to assert um, advice of counsel and therefore waive privilege. Well, that means to me clearly that the Trump campaign has never waived privilege. Now, the fact that folks may have turned over attorneys or other people may have turned over these documents to the January 6th committee in response to a subpoena, I would have to do a little more case law research. And I apologize because the response brief came in late last night, but I can if the court finds it important. I don't think that can be found as waiver. But moving aside from waiver, I think, and of course, I'll answer any question you have, Judge, and there are some cases that uh, I did not print them out. I will send them to the court, just read them really quickly. 
And judge, I'm going to go ahead and tell you right now, I apologize. These are not Georgia cases. They're not 11th Circuit cases, but I could also promise you there were none that I found either way. There is a case from um, the Ohio Court of Appeals in 1993 that said attorney-client privilege is not waived when a memo from the city attorney to the city manager discussing litigation was leaked to the news media where there was no evidence that the city had voluntarily relinquished the memo. And that's Ohio v. Today's Bookstore, 86 Ohio App 3rd, 810, 1993. There's also a case from the same year in Arizona, Resolution Trust Corporation v. Dean, 813 F SUP 1426, District of Arizona, 1993, which held that an unauthorized leak, leak of an otherwise privileged legal memo did not result in a waiver of privilege. So the bot, so A, we believe the prima facie showing of privilege has been made. B, we believe we have shown that there has been no waiver that would affect these documents. So now to get into the real crux of the matter, does the crime fraud exception apply? Yeah, let me pause you there. Mm -hmm. And it, it seems like the waiver analysis has to be document by document. I mean, there's no other way to do it, right? So your initial motion and the reply focus on five. And I, I understand you're, um, you're asserting a blanket privilege, but I think you just have to take it as it comes, right? Yeah. So focusing on the five that, that we've started to, to look at here, as I recall, you know, we'd have to look at each of them individually of, of how they got out there. Some we know, some we don't. One of them, I think we had one of the co-defendants, Mr. Schaefer, voluntarily giving it to the state. Why would, why would that not be a waiver? Because Mr. Schaefer was not, there's no evidence that Mr. Schaefer was authorized to waive on, the, on, the per, on behalf of the Trump campaign. Like, uh, you know, I, I, I don't mean to use a derogatory example, but you know, let's say um, the guy who cleans the offices at the Trump campaign came into one of the lawyer's offices one day and saw the memo. He works for the Trump campaign. That's where his paycheck comes from and hands it to CNN back there. Is that a waiver? No, because that person was not expressly or impliedly authorized. Now, I hope you don't ask me to cite a case for this proposition. I promise I can, but not right now. When we, when we look at an organization, though, uh, I, mean, I don't know how the campaign was structured or organized. Would that have, I mean, is that how would a waiver even look in this situation? I, I don't really know. Here's what I will say, though, Your Honor. And again, they're not, you know, they could only be persuasive authority to the extent the court wants to look at them. But those two cases I cite you stood for the proposition that unless there was affirmative evidence that the waiver came from the proper person, i.e. the client, and was not unintentional and was not, you know, um, uh, in a, improper, unless there was affirmative evidence of a waiver, there was no waiver. And that's what the court said, quote, where there was no evidence that the city had voluntarily relinquished the memo. They didn't say the opposite, which is, well, there's no evidence either way. Um, so even though I cannot tell you that the Ohio v. Today's Bookstore case says, quote unquote, the other side has the burden to show waiver, it doesn't use those exact words. I think that's the strong implication from these cases because it says unless there's evidence to the contrary, there is no waiver. Um, and there's evidence quite to the contrary, Judge, 
that, for example, if Mr. Schaefer and I, nothing I say, I want everyone to understand, I'm sure as lawyers are listening on YouTube, nothing I say is accusing Mr. Schaefer of any wrongdoing whatsoever. But let's just assume for the sake of argument that Mr. Schaefer released these documents. I'm not exactly familiar with all of the facts related to him. But the Trump campaign since then has taken steps to make clear that they're maintaining the privilege. For example, that's the reason why on October 18th, they have to decide up in DC. And those are, remember your honor, much of the case in December 18th that President Trump is being prosecuted for is very similar to what Mr. Chesborough is being prosecuted for. One of the issues there is the alternate slave electors. So I, I don't believe there's any evidence in the record either way. And I think without any evidence, the tie, if, even if there is a tie, I don't think there is, but even if there is, the tie goes to us. In terms of the crime fraud exception, it is absolutely correct that the state does not have to prove the existence of a crime or fraud for this exception to apply. No question about that. But just as important, if not more importantly, it's also true that simply charging or alleging crime or fraud is not enough. And there's a case on this. It's a little newer than Mr. Um, Aurora's case. My case comes from 1935, it, but it has never been overruled and is from the Georgia Court of Appeals. So I finally found the Georgia case. It's called Atlanta Coca-Cola Coca Bottling Company v. Goss, G-O-S-S. -S. And the citation is 50 Georgia App 637. It's from 1935. And again, it stands for the proposition. It's one of those 100-year-old cases, Your Honor, where you read it and it's kind of judges spoke differently then, obviously, and kind of put stuff out there differently. But what they absolutely make clear is that simply charging or alleging a crime or a fraud is not enough. And to be quite honest with you, Judge, that case that's never been over overruled expressly forecloses the first argument in the state's response. Right after they said, well, there's no evidence Ken was even a lawyer, and then there's no evidence of this. Then they say, oh, and by the way, just the fact that a grand jury indicted this man is enough. It is not. That is black letter law. And, you know, some people laugh. This is from 1935. I would seriously say, well, that means this is a nearly 100 year president that the state tries to get rid of in a citation to a First Circuit case. Can't happen. You're saying you interpret Coca-Cola bottling to say that a, a grand jury indictment is not. It specifically says charging or alleging a crime or fraud is not enough, which means they don't use the word grand jury. I want to be clear. But the way a prosecutor charges or alleges a crime in this state is through a grand jury. So, you know, ispo facto or whatever that word is from Latin. Um, I'm sure Mr. Chesborough would know. <laughs> That's going to, but that's going to be a civil case, right? So, uh, you know, yes. when they're using the word charging, that could very easily just be a yeah. statement, no. a term of uh, sure. synonym for what you might be doing right now, right? Well, and look, Your Honor, I hope that in the State v. Chesborough update to the case that comes out in 2023, Judge McAfee clarifies that, that it applies equally in the criminal side, but that is a fair point. Um, second, they go on to say, okay, in addition to the grand jury indictment, Judge McBurney issued an order, an out-of-state, okay, I don't have to even talk about that. <laughs> um, ironically, Your Honor, I will just say this, in that order, in the, in the Judge McBurney order, the out-of-state order, he specifically says 
and the, the state says this in their brief on the bottom of page 13, I believe, Mr. Chesborough was an attorney for the Trump campaign. So it kind of can't have it both ways. Then they also say, oh, well, third thing, January 6th report. January 6th report says that Mr. Chesborough and his cohorts committed a crime and a fraud, and therefore that's enough of a prima facie showing. And I should have said, Your Honor, and I, I know you know this, but just for the record, that's the question. The state has to make a prima facie showing that a crime, fr crime fraud exception applies. So January 6th report, it does say that. <laughs> I'm not going to lie and say it doesn't. It absolutely says that. However, it was not an adjudicative body. <laughs> it was not asked a question of criminal law. It, was, it did not follow the rules of evidence. There was no right for Mr. Chesborough to come and cross-examine any witnesses. So I would argue the fact that a bunch of politicians in Washington, D.C. wrote this in a non-peer-reviewed setting cannot be prima facie case. And the fact of the matter is, Your Honor, the state has to make the prima facie case. It's almost like they're like, oh, we don't have to make a prima facie case, Your Honor, because the January 6th committee did. No, no. The state has to make a prima facie case. And would there be any difference between us, the state coming in here in a murder case and saying, here's what the detective found, and I am now conveying to you what the detective found? Well, it can be a vehicle for other people's Sure. Evidence. I do, Your Honor, respectfully think that's a great question. I do think that is a difference. I think because then there's live testimony, right? And, and, and one thing I'm going to ask before I sit down, Your Honor, is unless, of course, you find it in your uh, wisdom to grant us the motion without an evidentiary hearing, that maybe we do need an evidentiary hearing for this. And I hate to recommend that, but that's one thing, Your Honor. If, if I, I'm, not gonna, I'm not trying to waive any future arguments, but if there was live testimony that Your Honor viewed and in your role as a trial court judge decided that is prima facie, then I will admit it might be hard for us to overcome because it's within your discretion. So we're, we're squarely within the evidentiary code. I mean, this could just as easily be a motion in limine going into trial, right? So rule 104B, I believe, allows us, or says the trial court is supposed to consider these kind of things um, without needing to use the rules of evidence by preponderance standard. And oftentimes it can be conditional. It can be uh, based on proffers. So what would stop the state from standing up and saying, this is what we proffer. Our entire case is going to be showing the crime fraud exception applies here. And assuming this is what we connect up, that should come in. Now, if they don't meet that proffer, well, now we're in mistrial land and whatever remedies or curative instructions or the whole trial is, is a wash because they failed to do what they said they were going to do. Why is that not procedurally how this should work? Because I believe, Your Honor, that the case law makes it clear that it has to be a prima facie case has to be um, proven through evidence and not allegations. And in fact, two cases I'll cite for that are the same one I cited earlier, the Goss case that I won't recite, but then also the Rose case, which we do cite in our in our motion, and it is a Georgia Court of Appeals, Rose uh, 262, Georgia App 528, which is 2003. That was about the accountant privilege, but the court specifically said that the same rules apply, so they used the rules regarding attorney-client privilege. And that case stands for the proposition that in order to make a prima facie showing for crime fraud, you have to do so through evidence. Now, in fairness, it didn't exactly, it didn't say all of what the evidence could be. In Rose, there was a deposition where the accountant admitted that he committed fraud. Well, 
I can see how that could probably be pretty good prima facie evidence to support a crime or fraud. Mr. Chesborough has never admitted anything, let alone that he committed a crime or a fraud. So respectfully, Your Honor, I think the state must rely on evidence and not only evidence, but evidence independent of the attorney-client communications. Now, sure, but when you say evidence, in what form are you contending that evidence has to be in? Because otherwise you're saying they have to prove their entire case first and then they've established it? Um, not necessarily because there would be different standards. It's probably, it's not true that the crime fraud exception would have to be proven beyond a reasonable doubt in order to apply like, like and, and, and side question on that note, since you bring it up in researching and seeing all these cases here and out of state, have you ever seen anyone try to quantify what that prima facie case is? I looked and looked and it, it, it was so circular because it basically said prima facie evidence is prima facie evidence. It's like, okay, very helpful um, court of appeals. But um, there are a couple of cases outside of our state and circuit. And I always want to clarify when I'm, when I'm citing that. So these cases I'm about to cite are outside. There's INRI grand jury proceedings. 867 F2D 539, which is a 1989 Ninth Circuit case. And then there's a case United States v. Marshank, M-A-R-S-H-A-N-K, 777 FSUP 1507, which is a Northern District of California case in 1991. And in those cases, the court said the state must rely on evidence independent of the AC communication. So for example, you could not, we argue the state cannot stand up and say, here's an email from Mr. Chesborough to Mr. Giuliani. It's, 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 you know, it's privileged, but the privilege, there's an exception because of crime fraud, because then you're, that's circular, that could go around forever. You can't use the very documents that are the privilege to prove that an exception to the privilege applies, at least in the Ninth Circuit, there is absolutely no case law in Georgia. And I wonder if that would also support your argument that we're not supposed to consider the indictment itself, since Correct. you can present suppressible or evidence to a grand jury, but we don't have any idea, and nor should we, of what evidence they were presented in order to consider this indictment, right? Correct. Now, the crime fraud exception can't apply here, Judge. All of the accusations against Mr. Chesborough and I'm not going to go into the wonderful stuff that Mr. Aurora, I'm kind of going to adopt everything he said as it relates to his first motion. But I do have to at least say a couple of things that just how some of those same legal principles apply here. Mr. Chesborough gave legal advice on two interrelated topics, the Electoral Count Act, as we already talked about, and two, and this is, it's very hard to even separate these two, but I'm, I'm trying to just have a full picture the vice president's role in counting the electoral ballots under the Electoral Count Act and the 12th Amendment. Mr. Chesborough's advice, even if subject to reasonable agreement, as we argue, was based on his good faith reading of the law. First, as for contingent electors, as Mr. Aurora stated, and I won't, I'll just say this and move on, at the time we were talking about, and those words at the time are very important, and I'll explain why I think why in a moment, at the time we were talking about, the Electoral Contact expressly provided for contingent elector ballots. I know Mr. Wooten disagrees with this, but I'm going to read it anyway. 3 USC 15, quote, if more than one return or paper purporting to be a return from a state shall be received by the president of the Senate, 
those votes and those only shall be counted, end quote. ECA 15 then went on to provide the specific process that should be used if competing slates are received. Then the vice in terms of vice presidential powers, which was the subject of the December 13th memo to Mr. Giuliani, the 12th amendment says, quote, the vice president shall open all the certificates and the votes shall then be counted, end quote. Mr. Chesbrough's advice as reported in the media was that to the extent the ECA limits the authority of the vice president under the 12th amendment, it has to be unconstitutional. Although that proposition is not universally accepted, it's a position held by quite a number of election law scholars, including some that were relied upon by Mr. Chesborough in his memos. And here's the kicker, Your Honor. And I can't, I can't emphasize this fact enough. In 2022, the ECA was amended. I think the only thing since 2020 that both political parties in Washington, D.C., have been able to get together and do is amend the Electoral Count Act. And here's how it was amended. And I think this is so important. Official Senate summary. This is literally a copy and paste from the United States Senate's website when they're talking about the bill that became the Electoral Count Act reform of 2022. Quote, the bill revises the framework for a joint session of Congress to count electoral votes and make a formal declaration of which candidates have been elected president and vice president. Among other changes, the bill specifies that the role of the vice president during the joint session of the joint session shall be ministerial in nature, end quote. Changes. If the law was changed, then clearly the law prior to the change was either that the vice president can do the things that Mr. Chesbrough said he can do, or at the very least, it was unclear. And why is this important to kind of wrap it all up before I just say one word about work product? It's important because we're talking about what? The crime fraud exception. And unless there is a finding through evidence independent of the legal memos, of the legal emails, and of the indictment that there was a crime or a fraud, there is no finding. And at this moment, Your Honor, I understand you have the power to make that finding, but right now, no judge, and really the only judge I care about is you, and no judge, including Your Honor, has found that this stuff is subject to crime fraud. The last thing I wanted to say, Your Honor, and then I can answer any questions and sit down is about work product protection. The state says it doesn't apply because it wasn't in anticipation of uh, litigation. And that's just wrong. I mean, it's, it's completely wrong. The November 19th memo or 18th memo specifically discusses a strategy to be used in Wisconsin where there was pending litigation in order to preserve the campaign's rights under the ECA while that case was pending. The December 6th memo, which the state says they don't have, specifically and expressly says it applies only to states where there is a pending lawsuit and specifically goes on to make clear that the advice was related to maintaining the campaign's rights pending outcome of that litigation. The December 9th memo specifically discusses the six states where there was pending litigation calls those the quote, six states in controversy, and then goes on to discuss the relevant law and rules in those specific states. 
And finally, the December 13th email memo from Mr. Chesbur to Giuliani, another Trump attorney, specifically discusses litigation strategy, specifically dis discusses the pending ongoing litigation in the six contested states, including Georgia and Arizona, and cites four law review articles, and then specifically discusses the possibility of challenging the ECA in the Supreme Court on grounds of unconstitutionality. That is all by definition anticipation of litigation. It can't get any more anticipatory than that. So with that, Your Honor, unless you have any questions, I'll let my colleagues from the state address any concerns they have. Thank you, Mr. Grubman. Donald Wakeford for the state. I suppose I'll begin at the end with the crime fraud exception, Your Honor. I think, I think unless you have any objection to that, that's where I'll start. The burden on the state is not high. A prima facie showing is about as low as it is possible to go. Uh, so I understand that uh, Mr. Grubman suggested that an admission by Mr. Chesbro that he had lied or engaged in fraudulent activity would probably do the trick. Uh, we don't have to get anywhere close to that. All we have to do is provide some evidence that indicates there is something more than a baseless accusation of crime, fraud, or wrongdoing. We talked a little bit about where is a case that talks about what quantum of evidence or what, what requirements must be met in order to establish that prima facie case. And I apologize that this is not in our brief, but I, since it came up directly, I wanna cite it to you now, Your Honor. Uh, that case is 757-FSUP-2nd-1339. That's uh, Tyndall v. H&S Homes, LLC. That is from the Middle District of Georgia in 2011. And it's a very useful case because it sort of looks at both federal and Georgia law with regard to attorney-client privilege, work product, disclosure, a whole host of issues related to the issues that are before the court today. Sort of talking about what each body of law says, how each of them sort of interact together. And we understand that the way Georgia courts have interpreted attorney-client privilege and work product borrows heavily from uh, federal interpretations of, of the applicable principles. Did you, uh, do you have a copy of that or can I just get that cite again? Yes, of course. It is 757 F SUP 2nd, 1339. And specifically at pages 1351 to 52, there is a statement that uh, the prima facie showing that the client was engaged in criminal or fraudulent conduct when he sought the advice of counsel, that he was planning such conduct when he sought the advice of counsel, or that he committed a crime of fraud subsequent to receiving the benefit of counsel's advice. Second, there must be a showing that the attorney's assistance was obtained in furtherance of the criminal or fraudulent activity or was closely related to it. So just looking at that as our guide, what we have here is uh, advice. A whole, a whole suite of advice provided by the defendant, Mr. Chesbro, to a range of people across the country, including Georgia, as to exactly what actions they should take, providing documents drafted by the defendant himself, directing them how to use them, and then indicating how they will be used later. It also, there is also evidence which We'll get into that in a minute, but there's also evidence that obviously all of this was done at the, at the defendant's direction and that these false elector certificates were submitted to Congress and to several other bodies of authority, including uh, federal courts, 
secretaries of state, et cetera, et cetera, and of course the vice president. So if we're looking at whether a prima facie case has been made and what the defendant's involvement under that standard needs to be, we've already met it. It's already there. Simply by reference to, as your honor stated, the January 6th report alone. What they did there was synthesize evidence taken from dozens of witness, witnesses, some of it received in prime time on television, indicating exactly how this plan came together under sworn testimony and providing a synthesis of that information for in a final report to the rest of the country. And I didn't mean to interrupt your honor there if you had a question. No, so I would say, are you still asserting that you think the indictment alone is enough to establish a prima facie case? Uh, yes, the indictment alone is enough to establish a prima facie case because evidence was presented to a grand jury which returned a true bill of indictment. It's not just one indictment discussing this plot, your honor. There's also one in Washington, D.C., which has been pursued by the special prosecutor there, which specifically names a co-conspirator number five who engaged in the exact activities with which Mr. Chesbro is charged here in Georgia under this indictment. So there's actually two indictments that have been returned. But I think the point we were exploring with defense counsel was if you're not allowed to establish this by reference to the documents themselves, how do we know that the grand jury indictment was returned without doing that? Exactly that. Well, are we talking about the illegality of the indictment or are we talking about no, just, the admissibility? How, of can we, how can we use the indictment itself as, as having satisfied that if, since we, we, they're, they, were, they, they would be allowed to look at these documents? There's no question about that because I don't think the privilege or the other evidentiary issues would apply to a grand jury proceeding. So knowing that they're allowed to do that, how can we be confident that a, an indictment satisfies that requirement? Could have been returned against Mr. Chesborough based on anything except exactly. attorney-client communication. Exactly. Well, a lot of the indictment, a lot of the documents which have been referenced here today are sort of went unmentioned by Mr. Grubman. And there's a lot of them which are exchanged between Mr. Chesborough and other attorneys or members of the Trump campaign. But there's also a lot which are sent to fraudulent, fraudulent electors in a half a dozen different states who are not parties to, they're, they're not represented by Mr. Chesbrough. I mean, and so that's, that's what I'm essentially getting at, is if you can compile those and synthesize them in a way that meets your prima facie case, should we really be focusing on just the fact that you were able to get an indictment? I see your honor. Or does that open up a whole uh, other issue? I, I think... Well, first of all, I want, I want to talk about the Goss case, which was cited by Mr. Grubman um, from 1935. What that case is talking about is not a grand jury indictment. It is talking about unfounded allegations of fraud or crime. All that case is really saying is you can't come in, yell fraud at the at opposing counsel, and then the court can open up their books and look at anything they did for their client. There has to be some evidence. So I just want to, I want, I wanted to distinguish that first. Um, but Yes, if we if if what your honor wants to see is something that isn't between Mr. Chesbro and his purported client, and I'll get to that issue in just a minute, um, the emails between himself and electors in all of these states, right there, that that's outside of any attorney-client privilege, and would a uh, would it could have been properly uh, considered by a grand jury or anyone, um, and would fall outside of of sort of the restrictions placed on what what the prima facie case can be based upon, but. The reason I mentioned the January 6th report is that it also makes clear that there are actions by others that were influenced by the, act, by the actions and theories of the defendant that demonstrated his involvement in the conspiracy that are not based solely upon his communications. 
I'm thinking specifically of the actions of, for example, Dr. John Eastman, who, who tried using arguments put forward by the defendant and in consultation with the defendant to persuade the Vice President of the United States to violate the Electoral Count Act on numerous occasions, something that has been testified to as the January 6th committee has told us by the Vice President's Chief of Staff and his counsel. So there is evidence outside of these mere documents which demonstrate that the defendant's activities were, were the defendant participated in a crime or fraud when he created the documents at issue in this motion. The, let me see here. I think it's also something worth remembering. There was a, a statement um, Mr. Grubbin made that no court has found that these documents were part of a, a crime or fraud and that is not true. The December 13th email specifically, it's, it's alternative, alternatively called an email or a memo, Your Honor, but the December 13th communication written by the defendant um, was specifically found to violate the crime fraud exception uh, by Judge Carter in California, a decision which was affirmed by the Ninth Circuit and which was uh, Mr. Eastman vigorously appealed. His petition for certiorari was denied last week by the Supreme Court, declining to take the opportunity to look at this issue. Um, so with at least one document, uh, there's already sort of been an examination of whether crime fraud applies. The, the January 1st document uh, is really just a recapitulation of what is stated in the December 13th document. It, as Judge Carter characterized that document, January 1st is also a step-by-step -step plan outlining what the defendant proposed people do in Congress. First of all, not in anticipation of litigation but a political plan which discusses what kind of cover the vice president or related parties could take politically, what kind of steps could be done to leverage their position and which outlines or which focuses on the fundamental goal of those in Congress who did not want to see Joseph Biden elected president, which is to deny him the number of electoral votes he needed on January 6th to become the president. So the January 1st and December 13th documents are extremely closely related in language in theme in ideas and in the way they are presented and one of them has already been found to violate the crime fraud exception i don't think that's that can we can get away from that the other two documents the november 18th and december 9th documents the november 18th document did was not found to not violate the crime fraud exception it was simply found to have already been disclosed this is again judge carter in california it had already been disclosed to the news media, and therefore the judge found there's nothing to argue about here. It's in the open. There's no protection that can still be brought. So he never reached the question of whether crime fraud applied to it because he found it was it had already been disclosed uh, and was not subject to protection on other grounds. So what about the counter argument you just heard that unless it's an authorized waiver on behalf of the campaign, that doesn't count? The, the question of whether the actions of the defendant himself constitute waiver is something that your honor sh should consider. Uh, we understand that if, a, if, a, if an attorney takes actions and makes disclosures, which make it likely that something is going to fall in the hands of someone who is not his client, or actually do disclose them to someone who is not his client, then obviously attorney client privilege is waived. Um, with the November 18th memo and the December 9th memo both, as we've stated, they were provided to fake electors in a host of different states who were not the defendant's clients. They were outside of any attorney-client relationship. But as I remember that the California opinion doesn't always explicitly lay out how they got into other 
people's hands. And if, unless we establish that, I wonder if we can so confidently say that, that it was waived. Uh, it, I mean, I think the point was made that, we, you know, we don't, that, that leaking is not a waiver. Okay. And so I, I would imagine that we, as a matter of policy, which is where we are with these privileges, there's some soundness to that. Well, there's the question of the leaking to the media, which happened in, on February 2nd of 2022. The November 18th memo and the December 9th memo were both leaked to or showed up in a story on the New York Times. Uh, at that point, the January 6th committee had not started holding hearings. And um, but anyway, it was leaked at that point. So there's that question. But those two documents were also contained in emails sent at the behest of Rudy Giuliani and the Trump campaign by the defendant to David Schaefer. And uh, I'm not going to go through the names, but people in Pennsylvania, in Wisconsin, in New Mexico, saying, here are my memos. Take a look at them. Here's what you should do. Here are documents I'm attaching. This is what you should do based on the theories contained in my memos. So attorney-client privilege for those documents is obliterated by the defendant's own actions, which he took at the behest of his client, supposed client, the campaign. I'll get to that again in just a second. Um, so for, for the purposes of attorney-client privilege, that's clearly not applicable. There's also the fact that the defendant was using these memos as a sales pitch. The emails which contained them were, made constant reference to, we're trying to make sure everybody gets together on December 14th. We're trying to make sure all the electors in these states meet. We're, the, the Mayor, Mayor Giuliani is trying to make sure everybody gets together. We're trying, we're trying. Here's why we think it's important. Here's why we think you should do it. He was sending this to people who weren't just not his clients. They were people who were not necessarily going to buy into this plan. Anyone who received these memos could have turned around and said, I'm not doing this. And we know for a fact here in Georgia and in elsewhere, there were electors who said, I'm not participating in this. Every time the defendant took the affirmative step of sending this to someone who was not his client, was outside the attorney-client relationship, and who wasn't even a, a committed participant in any kind of plan, there was the running the risk of disclosure by any one of those people because it was brought it was sent to to dozens or pardon me not dozens but half a dozen different states with multiple people on each email as it was sent out um finally so so with regard to disclosure i understand there is a policy question your honor but we're talking about the defendant's own actions here in disclosing these things to people who are outside of any purported attorney-client relationship and to people who had no reason to respect any kind of attorney-client privilege or work product privilege that he had with his client. These people were simply differently positioned. And we see that Mr. Schaefer provided these documents affirmatively to the January 6th committee and to the state of Georgia because he, are, because he had them, because the defendant had provided them directly to him. So we're talking ultimately not about a policy of of, of what other people may have done, but what actually what the, the actions that the defendant himself took in sending these things out. And that's especially important with regard to the November 18th and December 9th uh, memoranda. Um, I, I do think I should address one thing, which is that with regard to whether there's an attorney-client relationship uh, between the defendant and anyone, all we were saying was that now that this claim has been raised as part of a motion to exclude, the one of the only requirements for the defendant to start is just to demonstrate the existence of an attorney client privilege. So how, do, how does one do that? I think in your reply, you say, well, there should he hasn't produced a retainer or an employment agreement. 
do you have about uh, that St. Simon's case that you cite just talks about a genuine relationship. It doesn't really say with specificity how you go about doing that. Uh, it, well, there's there may be other ways of doing it other than an, an engagement letter. And the point is that nothing was done. It was just the assumption that was made. So we were simply saying, all right, if we're going to start at the beginning, the beginning is we determine whether there is a relationship that can be analyzed. And the person who does that is the person claiming the privilege. That was not done. The reason it's important is that ultimately we need to know exactly who the client is so that we can examine what the parameters of the relationship are. If the, if the client is the Trump campaign, that obviously means certain people are, are arguably going to fall within the attorney-client relationship. If the, if the client is anyone engaged in litigation in Georgia, such as David Schaefer, that obviously changes things quite a bit. If the client was only the Trump campaign in Wisconsin, that changes everything. Because once Mr. Chesbrough starts volunteering his services outside the state of Wisconsin, what, how can he argue now that he is still pursuing his attorney client, he's still pursuing his actions under an attorney client privilege when his client is confined to one state? We don't know what characterizes the relationship. And without any evidence whatsoever, the, the court, I think, should take this under account. The, this exclusion, while of course important and a bedrock of our profession, I don't need to tell you that is also strictly construed because it keeps evidence out of the jury's hands. It keeps evidence away from those who are, who are charged with determining the truth and finding facts. So where a defendant comes forward and says that it applies, he should, he should make a demonstration as to why and how so that this court can engage in the actual inquiry which the defendant is asking the court to do. And, and how, would you, how would that look? How would that satisfy you? An affidavit, a proffer, an evidentiary hearing? Certainly not an evidentiary hearing, Your Honor, but something. Uh, an affidavit from someone saying that this is what this 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 was my attorney. Some uh, uh, a, a piece of documentation from anywhere indicating what the range of the attorney-client relationship was. Um, I I'm not asking to be satisfied. I'm asking for something to be done because there has just simple, simply been the assumption that this is satisfied. Certainly there is the appearance of an attorney-client relationship. We're not disputing there is the appearance of one, but the whole question is who was the client and what was that relationship and what set it out? That it, it, if the defendant comes forward and asks for protection and doesn't say as to, as to whom or as to what range of activities, then it's, it puts everybody on their back foot trying to understand exactly what protection should even be considered. But, I don't want to get bogged down in that any more than we have to, except, except to clarify what our position on it is, because I understand we've talked a little bit, a little bit about it. I, I think that with regard to crime fraud here, there is an indictment that has been returned. And at Mr. Grubman pointed out that we are in a situation that is extremely unusual, and we, we have a moment of agreement on that. Um, this is incredibly unusual. We are not trying to determine whether certain documents should be disclosed in discovery. We are not determining whether the court should look at something in camera to, to further the inquiry here. We're not, we're not talking about vague allegations of wrongdoing. We are talking about a returned true bill of indictment laying out precisely how the actions of the defendant in crafting certain documents participated in an ongoing criminal conspiracy, which was not complete before he took the actions that he did, but was actually ongoing and furthered directly because of the actions of the defendant. 
we are in a, a, a very unusual place and almost no case that we're going to look at is going to have quite the same posture here. But in so doing, we, we I mean, the, the, the Goss case itself, which was cited by Mr. Grubman, just says it just can't be a baseless allegation. There has to be something to it. There has to be some evidence which bears it out. Where the defendant is already under indictment, or pardon me, where the defendant is already under indictment here and is this, uh, an unindicted co-conspirator in another proceeding in another jurisdiction for the same behavior, where there is already an, a multiple hundred page report by a congressional committee laying out the specifics of how this plan was carried out across the country with the defendant's participation and the participation of those who were affected by the defendant and his, and his theories and decisions where all of that is before the court and where the state is prepared to demonstrate to the court, provide to the court emails which are outside of any attorney-client relationship, demonstrating exactly what the defendant did and how it was related to a crime or fraud, uh, there's the, the prima facie case has simply been met. And uh, if your honor has any other questions about that particular point, I can answer them now. So the state would be, uh, I guess, incorporating as part of its argument the entirety of the January 6th committee report? Well, Your Honor, yes, All right. absolutely. Where you're asked to determine, make, a, uh, make a prima facie determination, and you said that what's to stop the state from getting up and saying, this is what we, this is what we intend, our, what, this is what we propose our case is going to show. And there is already a detailed document containing sworn statements and testimony and other evidence demonstrating exactly what parts of this conspiracy looked like, then I think I'd be foolish to get up here and say, we don't want your honor to look at it, certainly. But there aren't any aspects of that that you're saying, I guess are out of bounds or that you wouldn't be prepared to prove if necessary in the case in chief? I think what, what I don't think in trying to demonstrate to your honor that a prima facie, prima facie evidence exists, that we are tying ourselves to uh, the entire report and saying our case in chief is going to be the 800 page congressional report. Sure. I think what we are saying is that we just have to show you evidence outside of these communications uh, or, or just if it, what your honor is asking me is to point to something other than the indictment. That's what your honor said. I still think the indictment is, is enough. Um, but if you're asking me to point to something else, I think an, an obvious place to point is that, especially when it, when it specifically when it comes to the actions of the defendant and where your honor can determine whether a prima facie case exists. I'll also say again that it's an awkward posture here, as Mr. Grubman acknowledged, where most of these documents have been disclosed publicly, whether in the January 6th report, in the news media or elsewhere. We provided the ones referenced in the indictment in our filing were dinged a little bit by Mr. Grubman for doing that. They've already disclosed. I mean, they've already out there, but I am hesitant now to enter, say, in this proceeding in open court, evidence which we say would meet the prima facie case because evidently the defendant wants to be very careful about how we do that. If that's the way it want, he wants to do it, that's fine. We can submit in camera evidence demonstrating that there are communications outside of an attorney-client relationship, uh, demonstrating the defendant's involvement in a fraudulent scheme, namely the scheme to have people hold, themself out, hold themselves out as the properly elected electors from the state of Georgia when they actually were not. Um, 
the court has likely seen these emails. Lots of people have likely seen these emails because again, they've been disclosed. But I would draw your, your honor's attention to those simply standing in my place now as another example of how the prima facie case can be met for the crime fraud exception. All right, thank you, Mr. Wakeford. Mr. Grabman, any last thoughts? Rebuttal, your honor, just a few points. Thank you. I'm sorry, before, pardon, pardon. I guess, Your Honor, one thing I want to be clear about is because of the procedural awkwardness that I just acknowledged, we are not, I'm not standing here saying I don't want to do my job and give you what you need. And so that's later the court determines, well, the state had the opportunity to no, give no, you I this. No, no, I understand. I'm, so, still, so if, I'm just trying to think through still, and I'll need to look at it more closely, uh, just what it takes to prove a prima facie case, what our rules of evidence require, and the, the quality of the evidence that has to come forth. And, so, and, and the state, I, I just ask that we be given the opportunity right. to address any concerns that your honor may have. Um, Understood. Given the awkwardness. Understood. Thank you, okay. Judge. Mr. Grumman. With all due respect to my colleagues on the other side of the aisle, that was extremely circular reasoning. The reasoning was, why is it a crime fraud? Because we accused them of one. And that is what I understand the way prosecutors accuse people in this state is a grand jury. But that is the definition of an accusation. A prosecutor is not allowed to accuse someone of a felony crime without going through the grand jury unless the defendant waives that. So by citing the indictment, what Mr. Wakeford is doing is saying our accusations, which is all when, in fact, Your Honor, when the jury is seated here and they read the indictment or a summary of it, what's Your Honor going to say? He's going to say the indictment is simply an accusation. That's the definition of it. And you know what, Your Honor? There is another one in D.C. And it's been reported in news media. Mr. Chesbrough is UCC5. But if an indictment isn't sufficient to prove crime fraud, then there could be one indictment or 5,000 indictments. And the number doesn't matter. All of them are accusations. Accusations are not evidence, thank God, in Fulton County or in the United States of America. The January 6th report is an accusation. It might as well be an indictment. You know, it's not a criminal indictment, but it has the same nature of one. It's not evidence of anything. For example, could Mr. Wakeford stand up in court and say, Your Honor, I'd like to submit the January 6th report as evidence to the jury? Of course not. Your Honor would say, that's not admissible evidence. That's an accusation. Those are all accusations. Now, to talk about the case that they cite, I didn't get the name, but the Middle District Georgia 2011 case, we looked it up. In that case, the court made a finding of crime fraud after an in-camera review of the documents in question. And so to the extent, as I said, kind of half tongue in cheek, but honestly, there's, you know, half not tongue in cheek, unless your honor believes that we have satisfied our burden simply here and in the motions at minimum before denying our motion, I think the even the state's case says that you would need to look at these documents in camera. The, again, the reasoning is simply circular. Why the, 
and I'm really, Mr. Wakeford did, I'm sure the best job he can do given the circumstances, just like sometimes I have to do given the circumstances. But the bottom line is the state's argument is simple, is, is, is the following. Why, why do we meet crime fraud, fraud judge? Because it's a crime. That's what they said. Why do we meet crime fraud? Because that man committed a crime. Well, thank God that there's no one in this courtroom, including with all due respect, the judge, who can accuse that man of committing a crime without evidence. And that is what they stood up here and said over and over. Judge Carter may have, I would have to study that. Judge Carter may have found that the December 13th memo was subject to crime fraud. With all due respect to Judge Carter, he ain't my judge. To the extent Judge Carter found that any of these documents are subject to crime fraud, we disagree with Judge Carter. And we would ask this court to find otherwise. To the extent that the state argues that Mr. Chesbor or other folks waived attorney-client privilege by sending these documents to folks like David Schaefer, I would cite amongst other cases, and I could submit this later if the court likes, we just found it on Westlaw, Newman, and that's spelled N-E-U-M-A-N, the state. 297 Georgia 501 from 2015, which specifically, it, it was overruled on other grounds. So there is a red flag, but not on that ground. And it specifically said, in fact, Mr. I'm going to take out my phone if that's okay, because Mr. Wilson texted me the, the screenshot. It said, quote, it has long been the law of Georgia in keeping with the other United States jurisdictions that the attorney-client privilege includes by necessity the network of agents and employees of both the attorney and client acting under the direction of their respective principles. Now, we would argue, Your Honor, and this is a whole nother issue, and we could submit further briefing because it kind of just came up in the, in the reply brief, but we would argue that Mr. Schaefer and them, our agent, were acting as agents of the Trump campaign at that time. That case law makes it clear, and I'm sure there's other case law out there, that case law makes it clear you don't have to be an employee. You have to be someone who's acting on behalf of an entity for some purpose and judge. I'm sorry, but I find it a bit disingenuous if the state stands up and says, well, Mr. Um, Mr. Schaefer wasn't acting on behalf of the, of the Trump campaign for a common purpose. And the reason I would find that a bit disingenuous is because quite literally, the entire case that the state has brought is premised on the idea that Mr. Schaefer and these other quote unquote fake electors, which of course, Your Honor, we completely disagree with that characterization. There's nothing fake about them. But their whole case is premised on these fake electors. Remember, David Schaefer is a defendant in this case. And the reason I think that's important is because it shows the state's theory that he, I, I, I'm not saying this is true, but the allegation is that he, David Schaefer, was acting on behalf of the Trump campaign as what they call a fake elector. Well, you can't have it both ways. If he was acting on behalf of the Trump campaign, and that goes for all the other folks all around the country, only reason the state didn't indict them is because they don't have jurisdiction. But if David Schaefer is allegedly acting on behalf of the Trump campaign in his role as a Republican elector, well, then he's an agent of the Trump campaign for that purpose. And under Newman v. State, there is no waiver. 
And the last thing I will say, Judge, is I misspoke slightly. While there is no engagement letter, and that's kind of the way I view it, because you know, in my practice, certainly best practices are to have a letter signed, you know, laying out. There is an email that we could submit in camera that was actually submitted to the DOJ when this same issue came up from um, between Judge Trupas and Mr. Chesborough that I will represent, I believe will be sufficient for the court to find that there was an attorney-client relationship. And then lastly, um, the state's argument that, well, that was about Wisconsin. I can also submit one or multiple emails to you where the Trump campaign reaches out to Mr. Chesborough and says, can you expand your research to the other states where there's pending litigation? And so that argument somewhat dead in the water uh, before it even really had a chance to breathe any life. With that, Your Honor, I really appreciate your time. And unless the court has any questions, um, that's all we have. One, one moment, Your Honor, I think. All right now. Thank you. All right. So let's do this to supplement some of the things that have come up as a result of the hearing. Uh, Mr. Grubman, if you could submit in camera, I believe this would also be ex parte. But the emails you just referenced that will, in your opinion, establish and document the existence and nature of the attorney-client relationship. And then if you could also submit, if you have them, the, the five identified challenge documents uh, that you referenced. Uh, and then uh, we'll make these, we'll, I'll, I'll file these under seal once I've received them from you to have them as part of the record. And uh, the state, if also you referenced wanting to do this in camera, if you'd like to do a supplemental response that, that shows without reference to any of the legal documents that are being challenged by the prima facie case that exists here, um, certainly you can, you can do that and we'll have that as part of the same sealed filing. It could simply be a, a bullet list. Here are the facts that we contend we're going to introduce at the trial. Here's why we think it shows the uh that the crime that was committed outside of his out of his documents uh and i'll take a look at those and see if the standard has been met on october 11th fulton county prosecutors were back in court to face off with defense attorneys for kenneth chesbrough and Sidney powell during the hearing superior court judge scott mcafee heard oral argument on a series of pretrial motions in the case the hearing covered Chesbrough and Powell's motion to dismiss their racketeering charges on grounds that the indictment does not sufficiently allege pecuniary gain or physical threat. The hearing also covered Chesbrough and Powell's challenge to the racketeering charge on grounds that the state did not sufficiently allege the continuity requirement under Georgia's RICO statute. So I would also argue as far as interpreting statutes, you have to look at the whole thing and you look at the intent. So if we just go back to Title 131, subsection A, it says all the interpretations of the statutes, you have to look diligently at the intention of the General Assembly, keeping in view at all times the old law, the evil, and the remedy. It, you're allowed to look at this. And needless to say, when the language of the statute is plain, susceptible to only one natural meaning, that's what you go with. And that was just came down by the Court of Appeals just a couple of months ago. And then they also talked about the prologue in a case that I think just came down about a week or so ago in White v. Stanley. We were just looking at you know preambles and things of that nature, Your Honor. So it's not just the statute, but you can look at all these other things. Next slide, please. So RICO itself defines pecuniary value under 1614.5. It actually defines it. And the reason it's important is 
part of the penalty is you get three times of pecuniary gain, whether it's a civil case or a criminal case, as far as fines or any of that stuff goes. It's throughout the statute is what they talk about, pecuniary, pecuniary, pecuniary. Next slide. So when the government talks about talking demurs in this 1614 2b and explaining it isn't a talking demur. We're not adding facts into this. The words mean what they say and the author has explained to you or the legislators explained to you what the point of that was and what the reason was for why they did it. And when the state says you can't rely on speaking demurs, that's not necessarily true. If you read Gibbons, Grubb, and Williams that I cited in the brief, there are exceptions to these things on a very limited scale. If you're not adding facts, but you're actually explaining what the actual statute is, those are listed in those cases. And so what the most important thing I'd ask the court to consider is there have been no prior challenges as to the pecuniary gain language as far as what it means in any Georgia case, because every case the state can cite, I can cite, or the court can find, will have a financial or physical element in every single one of those RICO cases. So in looking at those, let's assume you're right. And that's a, those previous cases all had those aspects and it's a requirement. What did the indictments look like in those cases? Did they actually spell it out to the level of detail that you're saying? Or is that just something once all the evidence was in there, we had to have? Um, some indictments spell it out. I mean, I don't know about the indictments throughout the course of the state because I can't look at it, but I know uh, I was a partners with Don Samuel when we went through the Dorsey case and all that. And I know what those indictments said. They were very thorough. They're 100 page document type of situations. Mr. Floyd was there on the Dorsey case as well. Um, and, you know, Mr. Floyd was the one that sort of motivated the prosecutors to go with the RICO thing. I mean, he is the sort of the godfather of the RICO and the criminal side. But you're saying in the Dorsey case, unlike this indictment, it was more explicitly laid out that the scheme existed for the purpose of the Dorsey case uh, was based on unjust enrichment he was using there was about 50 financial overt acts that were in there and when the state cites Dorsey I, I take exception with it because they've sort of cherry picked some issues but it dealt with all the fraud he was committing he was getting money from other bonding companies um, to give them the licenses to have a bonding company he was having his personal staff do personal work for him there was just a ton of it. And once we get to the Dorsey case that I've cited in here, uh, I'll explain out some of the more additional factors. But that was a pure financial case that had an ongoing multi-year conspiracy alleged within that case. And that goes sort of to the continuity. But what I'm trying to say to the court is the financial issues are obvious in all those indictments. I'm not saying that you stole $2 or $4, um, but those are obvious. For example, if we take it the most recent RICO case with the forest defenders, They've actually put in there, you money laundered X amount of money by taking these donations and paying it to buy glue or whatever it was. It was very specific in that indictment. It's obvious just because of the nature of the charges yes, that are alleged or the right. predicate acts or the overt acts or something like that, right? Right, because there's no theft here. In Dorsey, there was theft. In the other case, there's theft or money laundering, specific financial issues. In our case, we have fraud and we have all those things. And if we look at the ECA, which the state just doesn't want to look at, is that even illegal? And so that all goes back to the ECA argument, but there's nothing financial, even a hint of it in this um, 90 some page indictment. And that's the point I'm trying to make when you compare it to every other case. You can sit here and read cases till the cows come home. Every single one of them will have some financial aspect in it that's plain and clear. The school teachers issue that Mr. Floyd worked on also had it because the teachers were being paid bonuses based on the results that they were getting. And there was other governmental monies coming in based on the results the school were getting. It was obvious and it was alleged in there. I don't know how much detail, but there was no dispute about it. So I'd ask the court to look at the indictment, the four corners of it and say, where does this say there's anything financial? All right, next. 
So the state cited Shearson Lehman Brothers, Raw, R-E-A-U-G-H, and Phil-Dan Trucking. Um, what they don't tell you when they're sort of saying, oh, the, the Manny's wrong about all this, those solely dealt with 1614-2A issues. That truly arguably would be a preamble because it says, we are trying to help fight organized crime and all that. And in some of those cases, they argued that you have to be an organized crime. You can't be a legitimate business in order to have a RICO. And they said that language doesn't mean anything, but that just explains why we did the RICO, that, that there's a societal problem. And that's why I cited to you the A in my second slide, Your Honor, that talks about it. So it's completely off base. The next set of cases they talk about, Rossello, they talk of, in that case, they were actually talking about the word interest. It really didn't have to do with the RICO stuff. So you, you can, we can all cherry pick blinds, but we need to read the cases to actually understand what they mean. They were talking about interest, but more interestingly in Rossello, they actually said, we're looking at legislative intent to figure out how we define interest as part of that case. Northwestern Bell was a private civil action. And basically they said, you don't need an organized crime syndicate, but you can go after legitimate businesses. It's not talking about the financial aspect. Schindler, it says economic motive not needed in RICO. And I put that in my brief out there, but we're not in the RICO. We're in the Georgia statute, which is more expansive, but it specifically says you have to have motivated by in order to do that. You can't get past two until you to get to subsection four. Next. So uh, at the end of the state's response, they said, well, we do have um, financial gain and physical harm as far as that goes. And I, I, I guess it's a little silly because they're saying the financial gain is the perks of the presidency. Well, apparently the guy's a billionaire, so I'm not really sure what the perks mean. But again, there's also a case law that talks about the attenuation as far as that goes. And I don't mean to be slight, but I can't even get within the six degrees of Kevin Bacon on this thing to say how the perks of the presidency are the reason. And it's not charged in the indictment. Nobody even says that that's the reason Donald Trump decided to do all this stuff all across the country was so he could make $400,000 a year and get free suits and a, and a plane. Um, and the same thing they talk about as the harm is to Ruby Freeman. Well, we discussed that. None of the co-defendants made any harm. If social media goes crazy and starts calling you these kinds of names and almost every bully that ever existed could have that. You can't expand the conspiracy to such a point where people on social media or if I can start attacking people, is Mr. Chesborough responsible for that? There is an attenuation line and the cases all talk about that. And so it's a little bit of a Hail Mary on the state's part to say, if you clearly find that there's a financial incentive that's necessary in these cases, then we've got the salary and the perks, which is ridiculous, or there's harm because social media made some kinds of threats to somebody. Um, so I, I would, ask the court not to consider that. Next slide, please. And so what I'll tell the court is there is no case law that's actually mm -hmm. litigated one way or other that the motivated by language is not a requirement because every case has finances in it. Nobody's ever actually taken it up. There's been no prior challenge to the motivated language that I've ever, well, I've come across. And RICO based on its own definitions is based on pecuniary gain. That's the issue. And so, we've talked about novel applications of the law and i think that's what we have here and if you really want to get technical into the weeds be it fifth or 14th amendment and due process you're supposed to have notice as to what your conduct can be wrong everything any normal person could do when they research this law say you want to commit a crime you'd see financial 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 all the rico cases are against embezzlement drug traffickers gang issues child traffickers um you know check fraud schemes, Medicaid fraud. That's where it all comes from. And there's no case that says otherwise. At some point, Your Honor, they're putting you under a lot of pressure to say, are you going to be the guy that dismisses the Trump indictment? There's all this press and everything out here. And this is why you get paid the big bucks. 
there's that old saying, let justice be done, though the heavens may fall. And that's sort of where we are. I mean, we can all sort of dance around it. And none of these press people or anybody in the public is ever going to say Scott McAfee did anything wrong. <clears throat> but if you say, you know what, the state is just wrong. They overdid it. We're all going to take a lot of heat. But that's the pressure that they're putting you on. They are flat out <clears throat> wrong on this. They're wrong on the ECA yesterday. And they're wrong on RICO because there's nothing they can cite to that says that there isn't a financial gain. There's just no case out there. You know that, I know that. So I'm asking you to dismiss this RICO as far as the financial aspects go, and then I'll come up and do the continuity. I try to separate it pretty well in my No, no, I, I, I appreciate that. And let's see if we can, as best we can, keep it siloed. But, you know, and, and even if um, we follow you and say that there's no case directly on point, I just, I don't know if I'm at, with you that we just can't read this and by itself determine that it isn't as restrictive as you're saying. I mean, it, I, I'm, I'm uh, read it many times now and it's saying it's the intent of the General Assembly of what it should apply to. It's not saying that it should only apply to that. And then that very last chapter about it being liberally construed. I, mean, I guess the bottom line, should, they, should a purpose clause ever be allowed to override the actual operative language that's what we're looking at here right right so essentially we're de facto making law here because it's never come up in any case and that's what i'm trying to ask the court to say the tie should go to the runner there's never been a case where somebody's challenged it because there's never been a case without that financial aspect already built into it and so we can say it's silent but does the silence penalize the defendant or should it penalize the government for coming up with a novel theory as far as that goes I know the court doesn't want to do the interlocutory, but this has to be resolved before we go through a trial because it doesn't exist out there. And that's my point to the court is, why do we get on the receiving end of these things when it's not clear? The lack of clarity doesn't hurt the defendant. That's what due process is for. And then lastly on this, um, we also had mentioned the enterprise element. I adopted Ray Smith's demure, so I'm not going to haggle it out. The court has it. Um, but that's also there that Mr. Samuel talked about with regards to the enterprise element. Um, I, I think you can read it just as well as I could uh, elaborate. I mean, but if there's anything you want to add to it, I mean, no, I, I think it's pretty good. And, okay. you know, we cited the Boyle case and some other things out there. Um, and, and again, in that issue is the, the connection between the enterprise and the acts, right? So in that case, the people that attacked different state capitals and battered mm -hmm. the doors, are we responsible for all that? Are there millions of people that were protesting and things and causing grief responsible? So it, there's a whole issue as to when does this indictment actually break down because the case law says you don't need to have full knowledge of what the other conspirators are doing, but it also doesn't say zero knowledge. And so that's something we'll have to, that's more of a factual question. So I'm not, you know, getting into that at this point, but I think the common sense application applies. And so I'll sit down, I'll respond back to Mr. Floyd, and then we can talk about if you're all right with it, the continuity. I think I've broken it down pretty well in my slideshow. Sure. But I think it'd be Mr. Rafferty's turn. Oh, I'm sorry. That's right. Your Honor, I'm not going to repeat everything that Mr. Aurora said. Of course, I join his arguments. Um, but I do think, you know, the points that he's made about the importance of pecuniary gain um, and how that really is a critical component of a RICO, a real RICO case, uh, is because of what we have here. Uh, the absence of any pecuniary gain or any requirement that there be pecuniary gain allows the government to charge a case in an unprecedented kind of way, as we've seen here. Um, much of the conduct that's at issue in this indictment um, throughout is politically protected activity. Folks that are doing different things that are lawful in order to challenge the results of the election. Uh, in fact, the actual crime that's alleged here uh, to change the results of the election in favor of President Trump is not even a crime. 
but because there's no requirement that there be a pecuniary gain, as the government has alleged, they're allowed to charge all sorts of First Amendment protected activity, protected activity politically, in order to make a RICO case where there really isn't one. Uh, this is stretching a statute, a RICO statute, well beyond what it was ever intended to do. It's akin to what we saw in Arthur Anderson, Yates, Skilling, and all these other cases federally, where the government has tried to expand a statute well beyond what it was intended for. Now, with respect to the conduct here, if you look at some of the things that the government has tried to attribute to Ms. Powell, because her conduct here is very limited, but they have alleged throughout in the responses to both the general demure and the special demure that we filed that Ms. Powell is responsible for the overt acts committed by others. Look at some of those overt acts, petitioning state, legis state legislatures, petitioning party electors, petitioning Georgia state officials, petitioning federal officials, various act under the Electoral College Act. All of these things have nothing to do with pecuniary gain, all of which are protected activity politically. People are taking lawful steps to challenge the results of an election to achieve a lawful purpose, which they are allowed to do. And people all over this country did that repeatedly. But the government, because they're trying to allege that there is no requirement, as Mr. Aurora said, that there be a, an element of pecuniary gain, they're allowing, they're, they're charging folks for these kinds of things. And the number of folks that could be charged under the government's theory is countless. Anyone that had a conversation, anyone that did anything to challenge this election or challenge the concept that President Biden won could arguably be included in this indictment. I think Mr. Smith's demure has said this, that there could be literally thousands, millions of co-conspirators in this case under the government's theory. That can't possibly be. It can't possibly be, Your Honor. Constitutionally protected activities, as is alleged here, can't form the basis alone of being part of a RICO enterprise. Uh, and that's fundamentally the problem. Now, um, you know, in our briefs, Your Honor, what we've tried to say is that the only way, the only way to put people on notice and give them due process under Georgia's RICO statute is through the intent of the legislature. That's the only way to put some boundaries or limits on the statute here. And as Mr. Aurora said, that limit is pecuniary grain and physical harm. And, and that just isn't present in this case at all. Uh, and so I join in the arguments of Mr. Aurora, Your Honor. I, I submit that this, this indictment is unprecedented. It is beyond what the statute was intended and the count should be dismissed. This right here? Paper oh, this. Sorry. And I, I'll take any questions, Your Honor. If you had any, I'll, I'll turn it over to Mr. Floyd. Uh, let's, let's hear from Mr. Floyd, and we'll okay. see if we need to come back around. Good afternoon, Your Honor. For the record, John Floyd, Special Assistant District Attorney. A number of things sort of got rolled into the 1614-2 argument, but I want to go straight to the core of that first. Um, and I think it would be handy uh, to have that up in front of us. Uh, so, Mr. Wooten, if you could please display the red line version of 1614.2. And, Your Honor, part of the reason I want to do this is there's a lot in there. And it's worth taking a look at what we had before 1997 and what we had afterwards. Um, first of all, as Your Honor pointed out, and absolutely correctly, this is not an operative provision of the statute. This is not a provision that defines an offense. 
that's 1614.4. Um, the definitions are 1614.3. Others deal with sentencing, statute of limitations, et cetera. We don't really need to get into those. But the provision itself basically says, I'm not an operative provision of this statute. I'm not defining what the offense is. Um, we begin with the fact that there are three cases that have been decided by the Georgia courts and they're Shearson. I've never been sure how this one's pronounced, R-E-A-U-G-H. I've heard Ray and I've heard Roe. But we have Shearson and Roe, importantly, before 1614-2 was amended. And then we have Cotton afterwards. Cotton is a Georgia Supreme Court case. State v. Shearson Lehman Brothers says as plain as it can be, the expression of legislative purpose is not an element of a violation of RICO. Roe follows it, addresses the argument that the scope of the statute is restricted by 1614.2, disposes of it saying this argument is without merit. Okay, that's, that's as plain as it gets. Neither of these cases have ever been overruled. Cotton comes after the amendment and an argument is made that a nexus uh, should have been uh, alleged between organized crime and that there was an adverse impact on the economy. Wasn't, wasn't there a, a point in the narrative there compelling or motivating the uh, alteration in the preamble as well? I think there was a, a decision that the legislature was reacting to? Yes, there was. And I'm going to get to that in just okay. a minute. Um, because, uh, and that relates to Mr. Clay's affidavit, former Senator Clay's affidavit. But the point is, when we talk about, you kept hearing there's, there's no case, there's no case, there's no case. Well, two points. There are three cases that say, no, this doesn't restrict what a violation is. You look to 1614.4, and if there's a definition that matters, you look to the definitional section and how that word is used. That's number one. So basically from our position, state three, defense zero, right? Now you look to 1997 and I'll, uh, I'll jump ahead because of the question you asked me. Um, there is, uh, and this is states exhibit one. This was not mentioned, I can, I'll explain what I'm getting to the record. Uh, in 1997, April of 1997, then Senator Clay was interviewed by a student at Georgia State University. And this is something that Georgia State has done periodically and they will have a student call someone who sponsored legislation and ask them about it. And this student did that. And so this document was generated by that student as a result of interviews with Senator Clay. And as you mentioned, uh, this legislation came in response to a case called Sevcheck versus Ingalls Markets. And as the article recognizes, Sevcheck was contrary to the General Assembly's understanding of the statute and contrary to existing case law because Sevcheck required an economic motive and said you can't have a violation without it. Right? That's exactly the argument you just heard from Mr. Aurora, is that's the requirement today. 
In fact, the amendment was designed to make sure that wasn't the sole requirement, and that's exactly what the article says, and it is based on contemporaneous telephone tele uh, interview with Senator Clay. And in fact, when Senator Clay explained his um, uh, what he viewed it as the intent, he said that it is the General Assembly's intent that Georgia RICO actions may be brought not only for crimes with financial motives, but also for crimes involving non-financial ongoing criminal activities. And among the examples he gave, it's on page two, uh, in the third paragraph under history was political overthrow. That's what he said then. That's what went into this article. A bit of a backstory, Your Honor, is that, the, and the article goes through this, it explains that Senator Clay was approached by the Attorney General's office as a result of Sevchin. That's absolutely correct, right? And he there's an interview with Michael Hobbs. <clears throat> Michael Hobbs was Michael Bauer's counsel. This Mr. Hobbs' counsel title was counsel of the attorney general. At that time, I was a special assistant attorney general. I worked for Mr. Hobbs. I'm actually the person who wrote the first draft of that. Doesn't really matter one way or the other. I'm not going to try to tell you what I think the interpretation should be other than as an advocate, not as a witness. That's actually how it happened. Once upon a time, Sevchek came down, Bowers, Hobbs and Floyd were sitting at a table eating a not very good chopped beef barbecue sandwich at Harold's and the issue came up, it was recognized as a problem and Senator Clay recognized it and he wanted to fix it. But what he was trying to do is not what's being argued today. And the language of the statute shows that. When you look at the red line, one of the things you'll see is that uh, it's paragraph nine of Senator Clay's affidavit he talks about how the intent was to restrict this to traditional organized crime activities. Now, I'm not, I, I wanna be very, very clear. I know, I know Chuck Clay and he is a good person and I'm not suggesting in any way that he has tried to mislead this court. It was 26 years ago. Um, and it does not appear because he does not reference it that he went back and refreshed his recollection from looking at this document. But when you look at the amendment, uh, and you look at the second, I'm referring to the lines on the slide, you look at the second line, you will see that the, up to 1997, there was a reference to organization among certain criminal elements. You will also see, if you look down nine, uh, eight lines, you will see a reference to organized criminal elements. That's in the pre-existing version. The General Assembly took those out the idea that this was intended to limit the scope of the statute to organized crime is exactly the opposite. It was taken out. And that is reflected in the article on page three, as a result of the telephone interview contemporaneously with Senator Clay, the comment was it was to clarify the common misunderstanding that RICO only applies to organized crime and not to other types of ongoing criminal activities. It expanded the statute, it didn't narrow it. In addition, Your Honor, um, you'll see that there are other changes in the statute. Um, if you look down, uh, I believe it's six lines from the bottom, you'll see the language is added. After a 
a sentence that says it's not the intent that the statute apply only to isolated incidents of misdemeanor conduct or acts of civil disobedience. It then goes on, new language is added. It is the intent of the General Assembly, however, that this chapter apply to, and that continues an interrelated pattern of criminal activity motivated by, or the effect of which is pecuniary gain or economic or physical threat or injury. Very important, Your Honor, look at the words, but only. Those were taken out. Those were words of restriction. Those words could have been read under the argument the defense is making today to mean it, can, it can't be X and it can only be Y. They took the word only out. And then in the next sentence, added the language that the statute be liberally construed. It previously said the statute must be construed to effectuate, to further that intent, okay? It changed it to, it must be liberally construed. It's pretty hard to come in here and say a statute that must be liberally construed has to be construed narrowly, particularly when the language that would have said there can only be a single usage was taken out, the language was taken out. And if you're going to consider what Senator Clay says about intent, the thing you should be considering is what Senator Clay said in 1997, in April, when the ink was barely dry on this amendment, not what is being said 26 and a half years later. <clears throat> because through no fault of, of Senator, former Senator Clay's, it's just not accurate. And so just to be clear, uh, the Cotton case is also dealing with interpreting the prior iteration, right? That is correct. It's decided 98, but I, well, Your Honor, I can't make the absolute representation, but it's a logical assumption because obviously it took the case a while to get to the Supreme Court. Right. So I think we fairly assume it was under the previous version. Okay. And, but since these, this kind of trio of cases in the mid nineties, is it fair to say though, this hasn't come back up again? Um, I think it hasn't come back up that squarely. Well, the, the organized crime limitation issue that was reflected in, that's the specific point, and Mr. Aurora is reflecting that specific point, but I think he's missing the dispositive point. The organized crime limitation wouldn't come up because all the references to organized crime were removed to make sure it didn't. So that that, that, that effort at restricting the statute was gone because they took the word or, um, organized out, all versions of it. And as the Georgia State article reflects, that was supposedly the intent of the General Assembly. Seems pretty clear that it was given the specific <clears throat> words that they targeted. And this was a common argument in that time period. In the 80s and 90s, defendants commonly came in and said, this statute can apply. Same due process arguments you're hearing here. It has to have limitations. It obviously was only intended to apply to organized crime. The United States Supreme Court at least five different times has rejected efforts to impose limitations like that based on what Congress must have intended. Um, and I believe it, it may actually have been in the Boyle case uh, where Justice Alito said, we've long since given up on trying to figure out what Congress meant. We just read what they wrote. Fair enough. And they read the operative provisions because 
the federal RICO statute also has a preamble. It was part of the Organized Crime Control Act of 1970, Title IX specifically. ACCA, as it's commonly called, had its own preamble. And lo and behold, the comment was the argument was made both by criminal defendants and defendants in civil cases. This statute is only intended to be applied to organized crime. You actually still hear it in the media today. Sure. Supreme Court said, no, not right. We reject that. We are not going to use that preamble to limit the language that Congress picked when it specifically defined the offense. And I think you lay all that out in your, I in your brief, the comparisons to the federal uh, preamble as well. Uh, and I know this may, I'm curious, just since it's raised here today and uh, uh, responding to it, Mr. Rafferty's comment, and it may get more into uh, the void for vagueness issue, but uh, would you then say that it is accurate to say that millions could fall under this statute under this? Um, no, not in the least. Case? Why not? No. Because, well, this has become a device. I've heard this in several of the arguments, which is a, it's a floodgates argument, uh, sky is falling argument. And the idea is that anybody supported Donald Trump is subject to indictment under this case. That's absurd. That's absolutely ridiculous. The state has never said it. The indictment doesn't say it. We'd never do that. We now know something that we couldn't say before, which is the special grand jury looked at a whole bunch of additional people uh, argued, uh, recommended that they be charged, and they were not. That's not what's. That's not. There's what's a difference though here. between discretion and the law allowing or disallowing something. So, is there something in the law that prevents you from doing that, or is it just because you're good guys being nice about it? <laughs> I well, first of all, I would like to say we're being nice about it. I'd like to say we're being responsible about it. But I understand the Your Honor's question. And the answer to your question is yes, because simply supporting a candidate is not committing a crime. Now, I think over there, Mr. Rafferty's heart is beginning to beat faster and faster as I say this. But, but the point is, we have to have some form of conduct. We have to have some form of intent. That's why we have overt act requirements. Okay? That's why we have boundaries on the statute. This is not you have a wrong belief. This is you did a wrong thing or you work with other people to accomplish a wrong thing. And the idea that unlawfully changing the results of election can't be a crime, can't be a criminal objective is ludicrous. Okay, that's just, that's just gamesmanship. Um, the point here, and, and by the way, they, uh, there's a couple of specific points because we're sort of transitioning into constitutional, but, and I want to address any question you have there, but there's a couple of points I want to make sure that I make in response to what Mr. Aurora said before we fully transition to that. One is he referenced the alternative fine, and he talked about pecuniary value, but what he didn't say is it's an alternative fine, and that's 1614.5D, and that sets it forth. The fine can just be a fine. It's got a cap on it. I believe it's $25,000, if I remember right. The alternative fine is pecuniary value gain. The court has the choice. But there's, not a, there's nothing that says there's no fine unless you obtain uh, a pecuniary benefit. That's not what it says. Secondly, um, you heard, I lost count how many times, there is no case in Georgia that has not, no RICO case that has not involved pecuniary gain. 
That is not true. There have been RICO cases in Georgia against churches where, and they dealt with sexual molestation and they dealt with the concealment of that sexual molestation by employees and other persons affiliated with those church organizations. And there is no pecuniary gain there, none whatsoever. Is there, are there sex crimes in there? Yes. Are there sexual batteries, aggravated assaults, et cetera? Yes, there are. Is there pecuniary gain? No. Are those RICOs? Yes. One of them made it to the Supreme Court of Georgia. So that's just not right. Um, we also are ignoring the exact language here because part of the argument is, in essence, what has been boiled down to as presented by the defense is there has to be um, pecuniary gain. Now it says motive or effect, right? The effect of Donald Trump becoming elected president is pecuniary gain. There's a salary, there are retirement benefits, there are expenses, there is healthcare, there is transportation. You have the most prestigious aircraft in the world to fly around it. You have the most prestigious house in the world to live in for four years. That is pecuniary gain. It's not diminished by the fact that he made a choice that he'd rather do that than do something else that might be more lucrative. That's not part of the analysis. And the defense can't inject it in there. There's nothing that supports that textually. Also, the question is, um, would the, was the effect, and here we've got a conspiracy case, so was the potential effect physical threat or injury? Members of this conspiracy, defendants in this case, approached Ruby Freeman and tried to convince her that her life was at risk, that she was in danger, and that she needed their help. They sat across from her house and staked it out. They approached her through multiple ways. When Lee couldn't get through to her, they brought in Floyd. When Floyd couldn't get through to her, no relation, I should say, um, they brought in Cootie, and Cootie finally did. And it's Cootie who's on the recording basically saying, you're a problem for some people and I may be able to hold this off, I'm paraphrasing, for about 24 hours, but that's all, okay? And what's the implication? If you give us the testimony you want, because you've already been vilified as this person who was involved in election fraud, you're the person Rudy Giuliani said was passing um, uh, thumb drives back and forth like they were vials of cocaine or heroin, was his comment. So she's already been vilified. Yes, people are threatening her, but a member of this conspiracy, it's not limited to social media. A member of this conspiracy comes and says, you've got a real problem and you need our help. That's different, okay? And that is an effect of physical threat or injury. She was scared to death, absolutely scared to death. And so if this is a requirement, we meet it. Um, we talk about, uh, we also talk about economic injury. Um, this wasn't addressed by Mr. Aurora, but you have the whole routine in Coffee County. Members of this conspiracy, of this enterprise, go to Coffee County and they take things that aren't theirs. They, they copy ballots, they copy data, they copy other information, and they copy software that belongs to Dominion. So they're taking property of the state and there is a charge of conspiracy to defraud the state. 
And they're taking property of a private entity that they don't pay for, that they don't own, and they don't have any right to. And all the, all the arm waving in the world about somebody got an invitation to go there, didn't give those people the right to take Dominion's property because it wasn't Coffee County's to give. They didn't own it. And just lest there be any doubt in the computer fraud statute, uh, information stored on computers is defined as property. So that's at least three separate ways that even if this was a requirement, um, we meet it. The due process argument was sort of tossed in at the end of Mr. Um, Aurora's argument. Uh, and I'll touch on that briefly. It's in our briefs. We've put it in extensively. Um, but this isn't going to be a, a, a newsflash, I don't think, Your Honor. Um, people have been challenging the constitutionality of RICO statutes since federal RICO was enacted in 1970. It hasn't worked once under any constitutional theory, not once. Um, in the late 80s, uh, in a concurrence, I believe it was in Sedema, it may have been in H.J. Inc., <clears throat> Justice Scalia made a passing observation. He kind of tossed it over his shoulder that maybe someday there'd be a vagueness challenge to the statute. And he thought maybe that would have some validity. That launched a thousand ships. I mean, there had been a whole wave of early, early challenges. They were all unsuccessful. There was the post-Scalia comment concurrence wave. They were all unsuccessful. Collectively, there are hundreds of them. There's about 35 state statutes. They've all been challenged too. None of them have failed. And Georgia has been upheld against the vagueness challenge exactly that we've heard about here. Chansey versus State, I think it's 1985, was the first major RICO case to go to the Georgia Supreme Court. This is old news. And when Chansey denied the vagueness challenge, it looked to a former Fifth Circuit case from 1976, one of the earliest federal RICO circuit court decisions in the United States, United States versus Hawes. By 1991, the, the 11th Circuit was saying that challenges, vagueness challenges to federal RICO were completely lacking in merit. And in 1992, the Ninth Circuit cataloged um, a number of challenges that had been made across the country in a case called United States versus Dishner, D-I-S-C-H-N-E-R, 974 F second 1502 at 1508. And it said, Everybody who's looked at this has rejected the argument. Um, and I mentioned there are quite a few state statutes. And yes, guess what? The same challenges have been made there. And in our brief, we went through this, gave examples, Supreme Courts of Iowa, Hawaii, New Jersey, Idaho, Indiana, and Arizona, all rejected them. Uh, intermediate appellate courts, New York, Wisconsin, Florida, Ohio, Oregon, Arizona, and New Mexico, all rejected and so that's old ground, uh, and, but not surprisingly, because lawyers are creative and they're diligent, they act on behalf of their clients, and that's fine. So now we have a sort of First Amendment modification to this that's come up. And the First Amendment nuance is that this is all, this is all petitioning activity. Well, no, it's not. And let's, let's take a look at this. In Haley versus State, 289 Georgia 515, 528, 2011. Justice Namius did an extremely 
detailed deep dive into the Georgia false statements and writing statute, 161020, which is, as he noted, based on the federal counterpart, 18 USC 1001. And he looked at it and he said, basically the bottom line was, the first amendment affords no protection to lies that threaten to harm the government. In that case, you had lies that triggered or potentially triggered government activity. They actually did. It was somebody who put up a fake website saying that they had committed a murder and giving clues. Not surprisingly, that triggered a GBI investigation, dedication of a lot of resources to address it, and lo and behold, it functionally turned out to be a prank. Um, the defendant said, well, you know, sorry, I was, I was kidding, but it's speech. No, no, it's not. Um, we have a whole category of crimes in this country that involve some form of speech that are not protected by the First Amendment. Um, you can't lie to the government, you can't lie to a police officer, you can't lie to a legislature, um, you can't forge a document, you can't create a false document and use it to induce government activity, you can't perjure yourself. All of those involve words or writings, none of those are protected by the First Amendment. Um, this is not legitimate petitioning activity. These are, these are people with a very specific goal who are willing to commit crimes to achieve it. That's different. Um, and we haven't had a case that says this, this can't apply here. Um, and you know, we're not, we're not the only case that's ever involved in election, by the way. Uh, it isn't, we keep hearing how unprecedented this is, and I'll explain, I think, later on in the argument. There are other Georgia cases that have involved elected officials and elections that have also involved RICO. But the point is just simply saying there's some speech involved doesn't get it. Um, there are plenty of RICO cases that have involved 16, 10, 20 convictions that was involved in Dorsey. Part of what Dorsey did was create false documents. Um, and there were individuals there who gave false testimony and made false statements to law enforcement officials. Uh, not not, not uh, protected by the First Amendment. And the fact that it, there's an election involved doesn't change that. It's not a license. That's part of the problem here is the assumption that if it's an election and you're disappointed enough in the outcome that the rules go out the window. It's not, not how it works. Um, I want to make sure that I've addressed uh, all the questions that you had because I went back to sure. talk a bit about and, and, First and we'll Amendment. make sure again, like I said, I think all these are going to bleed into each other. But uh, for now, let's let's give uh, Mr. Warren, Mr. Rafferty, last word on their motion on the um, legislative intent, and then we can start talking about continuity. Okay, thank you, Your Honor. I'm going to pull up the law review article and actually sort of explain it because it's something we looked at, and the fact that a law student interviewed Senator Clay, we've talked about that, but. Mr. Floyd is incredibly bright and I've looked up to him for a number of years, but I couldn't on the law disagree with him more. We are not trying to narrow the scope of the RICO statute and we're not saying it's unconstitutional. We're saying it's unconstitutional as applied because they're not following the rules. He talked about the prior version of 1614.2. I cited that to you as 6301. 20. 
what you have to look at there, Judge, is the prior version, everybody agrees, you had an element of deriving financial gain needed to be there, and that changed to motivate is what I'm saying. But the original 16144 didn't have an element of deriving it. It was again in that quote unquote preamble part of it. That's what nobody seems to want to tell you. That's what made it the element as far as that goes. And so let's go through some of the cases that they talk about. Let's start with the law review article. What you need to see that I've highlighted is it says, the act is intended to clarify the findings and intent of the General Assembly by stating that the provisions of the act apply to interrelated patterns of criminal activity motivated not only by pecuniary gain, but also by economic or physical threat or injury to others. That is what they said when this thing passed through. Go to the next page, please, Robert. This is on page three of the article. The General Assembly did not intend this sort of political dissent to be the basis of a RICO action. You can interpret it how you wish. And the last part that they didn't cite to you, to replace the previous language, the act provides that the Georgia RICO Act only applies to interrelated pattern of criminal activity motivated by or resulting in pecuniary gain or economic or physical threat or injury. It's always been this way. They're coming up with novel theories to indict people and pigeonhole it charge them with the substantive counts, the RICO doesn't apply. They cited to you as the Chauncey case. Couldn't be farther from the truth, Your Honor. Chauncey dealt with organized crime. And what they did on the void for vagueness in Chauncey was what is the definition of an enterprise or a pattern? Never about economic motive or physical harm as the requirements to the RICO statute. They're, you're getting half the story from the government and it hurts my heart to see this happen. The other thing with regards to MacArthur was in MacArthur, that was where the church people were sued under a RICO statute because they were allowing molestation to happen. What they don't tell you is the RICO charges were dismissed against the church because you couldn't prove that the church knew that physical injury was taking place. It only stuck for the actual defendant that was tried in criminal cases. The church was excused from the RICO because you couldn't meet the physical harm element. There is no single case in the state of Georgia that doesn't talk about pecuniary gain or in the alternative, as I said in my brief and put it on my slides, physical harm. One or the other is necessary. They want to talk about Dorsey. The appeal, if you read it, actually talks about the 50 financial overt acts that they were talking about. The appeal where they talk about continuity that's going to come up is under subsection E of that appeal where they talk about the financial aspects of it. They're misquoting a lot of the cases to you, and I have to come in here and clean it up. The GSU law article says this doesn't apply to political overthrow. I dealt with that yesterday. If you look at Pennsylvania versus Nelson, they specifically said if it goes to a federal issue being the election, in that case, it was Congress people. This is the president. It is exclusively a federal matter. That was 350 US 497, and that was back in 1956 because it was the only case we could find. Georgia has had other politicians that have been charged under the RICO statute. In fact, back in 1984, I think it was a labor commissioner or the uh, McCullough or whatever his name was, but that was dealt in, again with financial issues because he was taking his boat and doing other um, insurance fraud type situations. Same there Caldwell. is uh, Caldwell, I'm sorry. Um, there's nothing that doesn't meet one of the two criteria, financial crimes or physical injury. And that's what bothers me with regards to MacArthur because a church had their RICO cases kicked because they couldn't link it to the actual physical injury. There's no answer that the government has for it. They cite you Cheerson Lehman and they double down on it. 
and the ball case and the cotton case. Again, those talk about organized crime in subsection A of either the previous version of 1614-2 or the new version of 1614-2. They don't deal with economic or physical harm. I'm not arguing that the statute is unconstitutional or we're narrowing it. The law review article that you have, I have no objection to making that an exhibit, actually talks about it. And again, on two different places specifically says the new law is to allow for pecuniary gain and is a requirement. It says it twice. And that's what was on the interview with Senator Clay. And that's what he said here today. You can redline it all you want. I can go back and get the first draft if I want but it's not gonna change what the words on the paper are, Judge. And you will never find a case that doesn't allow for those two elements that I'm talking about, pecuniary and find, excuse me, pecuniary or physical. It doesn't exist. This is something that needs to be decided by the Georgia Supreme Court because it's never gone up, ever. Continuity's never gone up either, but we'll mm -hmm. deal with that in a second. So what I'm asking you is they are putting you in the spot. Judge, do you have the dexterity or constitution or whatever you call it to dismiss this case because we're going to go wherever and get our accolades because we're going after trump and you're going to be the bad guy in the black robe this isn't right this isn't that case and nothing the government decided to you can't be distinguished because it's just bald-faced wrong what they cited to you when you look at it everything's financial in those cases thank you it's kind of lends itself um to the general demure that we filed on behalf of Ms. Powell. Uh, as, as Mr. Aurora said, our motion is not that the statute itself is unconstitutional, but instead is unconstitutional as applied. And I tried to make that clear in our reply that we filed just a few days ago, I think. Um, you know, and I think the court's question to Mr. Floyd is, is correct. Um, where would the limits be? Uh, to those who might have tried to challenge the results of this election under the state's reading of the statute. Um, Mr. Floyd tried to dance in response to that question, but he never really answered it, because the reality is the only limits are their discretion, which means this statute can't possibly allow for the criminalization of this kind of innocent conduct. Um, the things that we talked about in our brief, Your Honor, things that are accused as overt acts, petitioning state legislatures, petitioning party electors, petitioning Georgia state officials, petitioning federal officials, all these different acts under the Electoral College Act. There were literally thousands, if not millions of people that did those very things uh, uh, without requiring some connection to pecuniary gain or harm. All of those people under Mr. Floyd's theory could potentially by writing a letter, by doing anything, by having a conversation, they could arguably be accused of doing things that are in furtherance of some RICO conspiracy. And because they agreed with others who thought that Mr. Uh, uh, that President Biden didn't win and that President Trump did, by saying that, by agreeing with them, by meeting with them, all of those millions of Americans would be in this, this indictment too. That can't possibly be what this statute is intended to criminalize, Your Honor. It is just unprecedented because it, it never was intended. The statute, the law, everything Mr. Aurora says makes clear that the statute was intended to criminalize certain types of behavior that had a connection to pecuniary gain or physical harm. And, and when you look at that law review article, Mr. Floyd talks about political overthrow. This was not political overthrow. These were actions that lawyers and other people took throughout the course of, uh, of this conspiracy to try and overturn the, the election in a lawful way, pursuing all of the different options that were available to them, which included 
petitioning state legislatures, petitioning party electors, doing all the things under the Electoral College Act that Mr. Aurora covered yesterday, lawful approaches to trying to challenge the results of this election. Uh, and so, Your Honor, respectfully, this indictment is just beyond what the legislator ever intended. It, it, it cannot possibly be what was intended when the RICO statute was enacted, even when it was amended. Uh, it was designed to criminalize those that were pursuing something for pecuniary gain or for physical harm. Uh, that's not present here. These folks that were involved, including Ms. Powell, Ms. Chesbro, and everybody else that's been charged, all they were really trying to do was lawfully overturn the results of this election. That can't be a crime. Uh, therefore, I submit count one should be dismissed. All right. Does anybody need a break? All right. If not, let's forge ahead and talk about continuity. Just a minute to get the slides up. You've got everything from early this morning, correct? Right, so we're back in the same uncharted land where essentially the government's asking you to legislate from the bench because there is no clarity as to what these terms mean. So let's go to the next slide, Robert. So as far as conspiracies goes, Your Honor, there's two conspiracies under the law. There's closed and ended, which could be a one sort of item with one overall arching goal that needs to be over a lengthy period of time based on 11th Circuit case law and the Supreme Court case law can't have a discrete goal, which I would argue is what we have here, but regardless, I don't wanna get into the weeds. That's open and a closed ended and then open ended is what we normally see because unless you stop these people, the drug trafficking, the child stuff, everything's gonna go on in perpetuity because they have to be stopped. And that's also discussed and thought Trump versus Clinton, the case out of the Southern mm -hmm. District of Florida was kind of interesting um, talking about the differences between um, a closed-ended one-item conspiracy with a discrete finding that you could run for president again versus what a regular conspiracy is. So let's just get to the meat of it under continuity. Um, so we go to continuity and sort of the one case decided in the beginning for pre-1997 was Dover. Um, and in that case, the government sort of says, oh, it doesn't, oh, it says this and it says that. The actual facts are in the Court of Appeals in Dover, they discussed the three different federal approaches that RICO took, and Mr. Doe was arguing for an Eighth Circuit approach that said a single fraudulent scheme was insufficient to create a, racketing, a racketeering pattern, that you needed more. Uh, he didn't ask them to approach the continuity or the ongoing issues that we're going to talk about, and the case never addressed the continuity, and it was never taken up to the Georgia Supreme Court. It solely dealt with, is a single fraudulent scheme sufficient? We are not saying the two predicate acts aren't valid and all those kinds of things, but do there has to be more than one scheme. And so again, we're looking at sort of the preamble under subsection A again. The next slide, please. So again, I want to emphasize based on the state's reply that uh, I think we got it Monday um, and so I looked at it. So nobody's challenging that the two predicate acts themselves aren't sufficient. What we are talking about that they don't discuss is even with the two acts, the statute itself requires an interrelatedness requirement to establish the pattern. So you can have two acts. Now, they can't be the same similar acts that basically are one thing going towards it. It's got to be something different. The case law is pretty clear, and we've sort of cited to that. Um, so if we go on to some of the other state citations, um, 
every case that they cited, including Dorsey, which seems to be the big one, had lengthy conspiracies, and that one had like four plus years. They all had financial motives. And so Mr. Floyd can talk about in Dorsey, they talked about the false documents and everything going through. But when you actually look at it and read the appeal itself, they're mostly arguing over the financial overt acts. And you can't, you can have a lot of those other things if it was motivated by pecuniary gain. Like for example, in this case, Judge, they could have all this if they would have said that, oh, by the way, we have X, Y, and Z as pecuniary gain, which is what they did in Dorsey, which is sort of what everybody's hanging their hat on here. But also that they had lengthy conspiracies, which is the closed-ended or the open-ended, which I defined for the court earlier. The state cites interagency, and it interagency didn't deal with the racketeering pattern as to continuity or a particular length of time. What interagency says, if you read it closely, is that a pattern doesn't require an uninterrupted connection between each predicate act. It doesn't talk about continuity. It talks about the relationship with the predicate acts as far as that goes. Next. Um, then we go to Overton, some of the other cases the state has cited. Um, in Overton, which we also put in our brief, is it establishes that these aren't isolated incidents. It's a continuing pattern of criminal activity in Overton citing Dorsey because you're talking about the length of time that it's going on. And underneath all this is the financial or the physical aspect that exists in everything. In fact, in the Dorsey opinion from the Supreme Court, they actually use the word ongoing pattern of theft of services. Ongoing pattern of theft of services as part of the holding as far as that goes. That's where I go back to subsection B of 1614-2, where you have to have the economic issue. If you look at, again, I'm saying it till I blew in the face, every case talks about the economic or the physical injury in this case. If you look at Dorsey's footnote five, it specifically says we are not talking about anything else except for the financial issues, which is where the state quoted its continuity argument in their brief. This ruling obviates the need to address other enumerations of error, which similarly are premised on the assertion that the theft acts were improperly considered by the jury for RICO purposes. That's where the quote comes from, ongoing pattern of theft of services were proven because they had 50 different predicate acts listed as far as what the financial aspects of Dorsey's case was over a multitude of years. So I just, I, I don't, I'm not tattling or anything. I just want the court to look at the cases closely because we can all cherry pick what we want. I'm trying to, at least in our briefs, sort of give you the, the good, the bad, and the ugly. I've got a lot of butt sees in there. Um, they also talked about the means definition. The word means is used throughout the statute. It says such and such means this. So I'm not really sure how to address the means issue, but I would point out if you read the indictment, they're saying it's under 1614 C. Um, there's a conspire or endeavor element. And so in some places it says initially it's a conspiracy, but are some of the others endeavors, but that's again, ticky tack issues, but it's just something to look at because the law isn't necessarily that clear. Um, go to the next slide. And so what I would say under continuity is the Supreme Court's case under Northwestern Bell still controls because it hasn't been overruled or changed. And the language in the RICO itself from the law review articles and everything else is a based on stopping ongoing conduct. And there's no Georgia Supreme Court that's ever dealt with the continuity issue on point. I can I cited a handful of law review articles. I guess the most intelligent one I found was from Randall Eliason, a professor at George Washington, 
um, that sort of listed it all out as to what the continuity issues are from federal and what the Georgia says. And one of the things he pointed out that I didn't realize is the Northwestern Bell case came out the same week as Dover when they sort of generically, as I said, um, didn't really address continuity, but sort of did. And Northwestern Bell has never really been dealt with head on in our state because those two cases came on the same week. So I don't know how one, um, the Court of Appeals could have you know, dealt with it. And that was one of the things that Lyson was talking about with regards to his findings on continuity. So <laughs> what about the, I think the one of the main arguments we see in the response is that we need to distinguish between whether this is a conspiracy RICO under C or I don't know what you would call it, regular RICO under B. And so that a lot of these cases aren't gonna answer these questions for us. So shouldn't we be looking solely at cases that are dealing more with conspiracy RICO? So if you look at C, that's sort of the problem I have. I'm not really sure what the point of C is. C says you can conspire to do the substantive action RICO under B in every the 41 or 42 crimes that are listed. So in any conspiracy, you have to conspire to do a specific substantive act. They just don't have to prove that the act itself went all the way through. That's the point of a conspiracy that we agreed to it and here are your two predicate crimes and all you go. So most of the crimes you're gonna deal with B, it's very rare to see cases cited under C. I don't know how many you've sat through or prosecuted yourself. I don't think we did that many RICOs in the old days, but um, the C is either conspire or endeavor to do B with all the litany of issues. So it also lists a bunch of federal cases or federal crimes that can be part of our state RICO. So, um, and that was under 1614.35C under the definitions as far as I go. So I'm not really sure what it is that I'm supposed to be able to address. If you say conspiracy, so, you I still mean, I guess, have to prove it. But your, your, your position would be that C requires proof of C plus B? Essentially, that C swallows B? Count one. All the defendants with the offense of violation of the Georgia. I, I mean, I recognize that C itself they, references B. Right. So I don't know how, what is it that you're conspiring to do? If you're doing a RICO conspiracy, you go from C into B because that's the RICO. The RICO statute is not a conspiracy statute. You can conspire to do RICO, you can conspire to do murder, you can conspire to do any substantive count. C itself doesn't say anything except I'm conspiring, a little bit of a lower standard, to do B. So I'm not sure when the indictment itself says, we are saying everything is a conspiracy in this case, right? As you see through, we're conspiring to do B. So B is sort of what the elements are. And if you don't have the financial issues, you don't have the continuity, you're back. How can you conspire to do something that arguably doesn't exist under our law. And the fact that your honor has to struggle with it, it sort of kind of tells us as to the equal protection. Again, we're not saying it's vagueness, it's not this. The statute says what it says clearly. It's expressed in there. Next slide. And so the one thing I want the court to understand is every RICO case, you do it on a case-by-case -case basis. There is no pattern jury RICO charge. So we would have to come up with the elements and the explanation and all that stuff. It doesn't exist. You can go to Westlaw, you can go to your bench book. It's not there. And so Mr. Samuel and I had a nice and interesting discussion about it as to how you know he's done it in the past and what happens. Um, you know, there's a few things under in the pattern charges that talk about venue and where RICO is appropriate, but it's not like murder, one, two, three, four, that you've done it. 
So I go back to my due process analysis as far as why does the issue of the economic, the issue of the continuity, the issue of physical harm, not control the day for the defendant? Why does the government in their discretion just get to bring it when there's been no other case in the history of Georgia jurisprudence that deals with it? There's not a case they can cite you that I can't distinguish and clarify, just like I did some of the other cases. Remember, they cited you, oh, there's no economic injury, or keeps saying that. Well, that's what I'm focusing on, but I also said, or physical, right? So where the kids were being molested at the church, the church's RICO charges were dismissed. So let's go back to that. Only the person that did the molesting had to, had to eat those charges as far as I go. So I, I don't know what else I can tell you. It, it's, it, this is about <laughs> as clear slash vague as can be, right? It's as clear as you can be in that you need these issues, you need continuity, there's been no legislative, I'm sorry, there's been no Supreme Court decision. But at the same time, it's vague because as Mr. Rafferty said, you can squeeze anybody into it. Mr. Um, Floyd can say this is absurd, this is this, but what he does, tells you is that's their discretion. It may be absurd to do it because you remember in federal court, they said we would indicted the Hawaii electors based on the same conduct as far as that goes. It's purely discretionary. There's nothing that stops them from doing this. Uh, Mr. Rafferty, I think you joined this one. I don't think I joined this one before. Um, I don't know what, oh, did I join this? Yeah. yeah, I think you did. Uh, well, you know, you are, I would, I would echo everything Mr. Aurora said. And, you know, the one comment I'll make is what I made during my arguments about pecuniary gain that Mr. Aurora just said, which is there are no limits to the way this statute can be employed by the government absent the court intervening. Uh, they are going to charge and can charge in their discretion anyone under the theory that Mr. Floyd has advocated who had anything to do with efforts to overturn the results of the election because they define it as unlawful. They think it's unlawful, notwithstanding the fact that many of the activities that are set forth in this indictment are uh, truly legitimate ways to overturn the results of an election. All the things I said before, but if you supported that in the eyes of the government, the way they've defined the statute, that could potentially bring you into a RICO statute and a RICO case. That can't possibly be, Your Honor. The case should be dismissed. All right, Mr. Floyd, why don't we jump right in there with talking about B and C and what you think the elements are. Okay. And, and, and really, I would wonder, why would anyone ever charge B if it seems so much easier to charge C? Um, well, it, it's, an, it's an interesting question, Your Honor. There is overlap potentially between these provisions. Um, if you were to um, waste a perfectly good Saturday with Lexis or Westlaw, you could find cases in Georgia where A, B, and C have been charged and a defendant's been convicted of all three. They did not merge because they have different elements. You could find um, B uh, and C together with convictions on both. They don't merge. Dorsey was convicted of an A violation and a B violation. Um, I think contrary to something that was said a little earlier, they did not merge. Supreme Court specifically rejected it. Over, overlap is not equivalence, in other words. And in some circumstances, you have a situation, you know, could Dorsey have potentially been charged as conspiracy? Yeah. Um, there were specific facts in that case, which included the fact that other people with whom he acted had already pled guilty 
et cetera, before he was charged. So it didn't necessarily make sense in that case to charge them together. Doesn't mean they couldn't have been. But I think the, this, is, this is something we kind of harped on in our briefs. And it, I don't think it's just been said expressly in the argument that you just heard. So I want to touch on it. There is one thing that is crystal clear. It is not a requirement to prove a substantive violation as a prerequisite to proving a conspiracy. And I think that's what's being implied, but not stated out loud. And there is, we've cited multiple cases on that. Um, you know, one of, the, one of the United States Supreme Court cases the defendants have sort of shied away from is Salinas, uh, which absolutely says that flat out and illustrates it beautifully. Salinas was a deputy chair, sheriff in Hidalgo County, Texas. The sheriff was a guy named uh, Marmalejo. Marmalejo was taking bribes to allow contraband to come into his jail, contact visits, et cetera. Um, Salinas, Marmalejo was charged conspiracy and substantive, federal RICO. So was Salinas. Salinas was acquitted of the substantive. He was convicted of the, um, uh, of, of the conspiracy. He went to the Supreme Court saying, the jury should have been instructed that I had to engage in a pattern of racketeering activity. Okay, which is kind of goes to the threshold issue we're talking about right now. Okay, the Supreme Court said, no, absolutely not. Because Congress enacted this statute with a knowledge of the general body of pre-existing conspiracy law, which is absolutely clear that it is not a requirement to violate a conspiracy statute that you commit the underlying substantive crime or any substantive crime. Conspiracy punishes agreement. Conspiracy doesn't punish completed crimes. Um, and so that distinction, that distinction is crucial. And it's frankly the one that the defense is kind of ignoring and using to slip under the blanket here. Because continuity, um, you, were, you were told about closed-ended and open-ended. That was the reference. But you were told closed-ended conspiracy, open-ended conspiracy. That's not the language. It's open, closed-ended pattern, open-ended pattern. Contin it's continuity, not conspiracy. And why is that important? Because continuity is a component of a pattern of racketeering activity. And when you look at 16.14.4, you will see there are two substantive violations, A and B. Both of those specifically reference acting through a pattern of racketeering activity. C is the conspiracy violation. No reference to pattern of racketeering activity. No reference to racketeering activity at all. Instead, a reference to something totally different, an overt act, right? And Georgia law, and we've cited this at, at least in two different briefs, I know. And I apologize for the overlap, but as, as you observed at the beginning, some of these arguments come up again in various forms in multiple briefs. And so we've tried to give you a thorough response each time because we don't know which brief you'll read first. Um, and we didn't want you to have to jump back and forth from brief to brief with cross references. So there is, there is some duplication there, but Georgia law and federal law are perfectly aligned here. An overt act doesn't have to be a crime. So what you're hearing is the state has to prove continuity, which is an element, which is a component of a pattern of racketeering activity 
which is not an element of what we charged. And so it's just wrong from the get-go. Um, they're ignoring the text. Uh, and so I think, I think candidly the defense realizes this argument is defective. And so it kind of pivoted during the course of argument um, into an effort to re-inject the financial motive argument and to somehow say continuity means you have to have a financial motive. They don't have anything to do with each other. They're just two different concepts under the statute. Um, and one of the things you didn't hear was the discussion, any discussion of the statutory difference. So your honor's first obligation, you have to look at the text. Um, certainly if nobody's interpreted it, you, right, you're the first one who looks at the text. Here there's text and it's been interpreted. So let me explain what I mean by that. The definition of pattern of racketeering activity under Georgia RICO is different than the federal one and advisedly so. I think you're talking about the means and the require. Which, I am talking about means and requires and I won't. It's I won't, pretty well laid out yeah. in the briefing. And you, you, you get that, all right? And so the context here is, is significant because we're getting all these constitutional arguments. So let me, let me briefly address why that matters. Um, means versus requires might seem like a small distinction, but it's not. The United States Supreme Court first recognized that Congress had used requires instead of means and said pretty clearly, we'd be reaching a different result if it had been means. It's fair to think of federal RICO as sort of RICO 1.0. It's the first statute. It comes out of the gate in 1970. RICO states and territories have been enacting RICO statutes ever since. They've had the advantage of looking at the federal authority. They've had the advantage of time to adapt these statutes to their own needs and their own policies. Quite a few have used requires instead of means. Every state, that has addressed the question, has looked, that has looked at that, has said this precludes a continuity requirement. The word continuity is nowhere in the statute. There is nothing that compels it. Um, it is extra textual. And so is there something that allows you to write that into the statute when the General Assembly didn't? Perhaps conceivably in some circumstance there would be, but when they use means, Every court to look at that says that means, no pun intended, the definition is complete and self-contained and there's no room to add any additional requirement. Um, and we've cited all of those Supreme Court, Supreme Court cases from sister states for you. Um, they are entirely consistent with a case that you heard only the most passing reference to from Mr. Aurora, which was Dover versus State. Um, which says can have, you can have a pattern consisting of two predicate acts, part of the same scheme without the added burden of showing that the defendant would continue the conduct or had been guilty of like conduct before the incidents charged as a RICO violation. Dover was decided within a few days of H.J. Inc. That's right. But the Dover court knew about it because it cited H.J. Inc. They weren't unaware of it. Um, they took the time to reference it. They were right on top of this issue. Dover has been cited by subsequent Georgia courts over and over again for the premise that there is no requirement of continuity. 
it's been cited, and we cited these cases to you, by federal courts applying Georgia RICO saying there's no requirement of continuity, see what the Georgia courts have done. Right? This is not some mysterious open question. This has been settled. And the idea that, um, the idea that you know, we heard, we've heard multiple references, the Georgia Supreme Court has to look at this. Well, the Georgia Court of Appeals has looked at it over and over again. And the implication that somehow those courts don't bind your honor is just plain wrong. Um, I don't know if this is an effort to get an interlocutor. I'm not exactly sure what's going on there. But the fact of the matter is, this question has been settled. And there was a lot of discussion about Dorsey and trying to draw distinctions from Dorsey. But what you didn't hear was the quotation of the language in Dorsey that actually matters twice in that decision, and I remember it, I argued Dorsey, um, twice in that decision, the court says two related acts constitute a pattern. You don't have to have anything more. And the argument was, was the, the, the wedge argument was some of these acts aren't acts of racketeering activity or some of these acts weren't proven and we don't know which ones the jury relied on so we need to go back and do it again and the supreme court said no there is more than adequate evidence of at least two two is all it takes we don't care about anything else and we're not looking at any of the rest of it we don't have to go through this that's the footnote i think mr aurora uh, reference, but I, uh, we differ a little bit on how that's properly interpreted here. But the point is, continuity travels in federal law as part of pattern. In Georgia, the definition's different. It's not part of a pattern at all. But pattern is not part of the requirements for the state in a uh, RICO conspiracy case. So that's it. Um, it, it just, I mean, this is an argument, it, it fails at its inception because the difference in the text between C and A and B on the one hand, it then fails because of a difference in the Georgia text as opposed to the federal text, which led to the result in um, H.J. Inc., where you get continuity. The, the idea that the Georgia courts are somehow lost stumbling about in the fog because H.J. Inc. hasn't been explored? The answer is simple. H.J. Inc. recognized the difference between the statutes. Our statute's different. H.J. Inc. doesn't apply. And that's what everybody has said ever since. And that's what the other states have said ever since. This is not, um, this is not difficult. This is not confusing. Um, Sorry, I'm just checking my notes to make sure I've addressed everything that I think needs to be addressed. Uh, just at one point, um, there was a reference to conspiracies as predicate acts. There's a fundamental difference. Um, an act of racketeering activity can consist of a conspiracy. That would be an act. So you could have a pattern, for example, if you were trying to prove a, a, a substantive case, that would consist of three or five, four or five conspiracies. Suppose, I'll just hypothesize, they were, because actually there are federal gang cases like this where there are multiple conspiracies to murder people. There's a plan to murder several people on the same day. Each of those conspiracies to commit murder was its own predicate act. They weren't independently a RICO violation. Together, they formed a pattern 
that supported the RICO violation. There's just a conceptual difference between the two things. Um, and, and, and I think it's been a little bit blurred by the defense, I think inadvertently. But finally, the idea of constitutionality, because this kept coming up again in this argument, um, both Mr. Rafferty and uh, Mr. Aurora referenced it. And this seems to now have become, you have to impose an economic motive requirement or the statute isn't constitutional. That, that is absolutely wrong. And the example is Scheidler, National Organization for Women Be Shyly, which we have cited to you, in which the argument was made, RICO has to have a constitutional component. The Supreme Court rejected that. No one has ever held federal RICO unconstitutional ever since. There is not an economic motive requirement in federal RICO. There's not an economic motive requirement. I, I don't wanna speak absolutely, but off the top of my head, I can't think of one in any other state or territory where that is a blanket requirement. And I've spent more years than I care about writing a really boring, thick book about state and territorial RICO statutes. So um, I can't say I have perfect memory of it, but I can't, I can't tell you of one off the off top of my head. There are some that require it for a specific type of predicate act, but a blanket requirement, no. None, again, none of those statutes have ever been held unconstitutional. So that, that, just, doesn't, that just doesn't wash. Um, it's not a constitutional imperative, and I won't repeat the earlier argument, but it's not a statutory imperative either. I hope I've covered everything, but if you have any questions, I'm glad to take a cut. Mr. Roar. All right, Judge, I haven't written a thick book, but I used to play a nuclear physicist in a different life, so I'm going to try to hold myself to be somewhat intelligent, not disappoint my Georgia Tech folks from back in the 80s. Continuity is correct. The word isn't used in the statute. So we're trying to have it both ways, right? But economic harm and physical harm is. But let's not look at that as what they're going to say. But continuity is not in there. They will say federal crimes don't mention economic issues under federal RICO. So therefore, states shouldn't have that. But federal mentions continuity, but it shouldn't apply to the state. It's always a circular argument with the state in this case because they've used their discretion inappropriately. They cite to you to Salinas. Pull that up, please. And I will take you to the holding at the end of Salinas that I'd like the court to read to get an understanding of what that case dealt with. So this is where the B and the C, which is incredibly confusing, talks about well established principles and contempt. Is there more to the other column? Or is this where it starts, Robert? Go all the way down. Okay, let's go back up. Um, so well-established principles and contemporary understanding demonstrate that although a conspirator must intend to further an endeavor, which if completed would satisfy all the elements of the substantive, substantive criminal offense, it suffices, that he adopt the goal of furthering or facilitating the criminal endeavor and need not agree to undertake all of the acts necessary for the crime's completion. But you have to have a valid substantive underlying crime. 
If it's C, it's a conspiracy to do something that has to be valid. That's what Salinas is telling you out there. So again, we can cherry pick everything that we want, but if you read the whole cases, that's what I'm trying to talk to the court about, is it doesn't necessarily say that. It's just, it's vague, it's not there. So to talk about Dover, Dover's been cited 16 times. You have the citation. I had a whole slide on it. I didn't blow by it and I briefed the hell out of it as far as that goes. If your assistant or your law clerk or anybody goes and punches in Dover, hits citing references, 16 cases will come up, which are inherently all civil just about. If you then put in a search term of continuity under Dover, zero comes up. It's never been resolved as far as that goes. And if you actually read the Dover case and read Professor Eliason's Law Review article, you will see that it was almost as a side issue. And that's why I told the court they were looking at three different analysis of RICO in that case. And they were talking about, is it one specific set of acts sufficient to do that? We are not challenging the two predicates acts. We're not challenging the pattern, we're not challenging any of it. We're challenging the fact that they do not allege and this indictment does not prove financial or continuity because there's nothing that says you have to and there's nothing that says you don't have to. But all the cases, all of them that they can't contradict judge went on for years and had one or the other as a critical crucial element in there. And the old 1997, 1644 didn't talk about the necessary financial crimes. It was in the preamble in that one too, just like it is now in 1614 too. And that was an element then. That's what they changed. That's what the law review article tells you. That's what the, the affidavit tells you. I, I don't know how much more circular I can be as far as that goes. So will you pull up the due process slide on the last slideshow? And I know we've talked about means and I was a little confused as the government bringing that up in there, but I know this is silly because it's the definition of is, is, I'm sort of going all Clintonian, but the actual RICO statute doesn't define what means is. It just says this means that, or this means that. What does the word means mean that they're making such a big production out of? And if you look at a lot of other cases, it could be a lot of different things. And that's what I'm trying to explain to the court. There's no actual definition. They're reading it a certain way. We are allowed to read it a different way. What I would posture to the so your position would be that means is the equivalent of requires yes your honor why is that unreasonable versus what they're saying i understand what the case law says but they have a full definition section in rico 16.14.3 and nowhere do they actually define what means specifically means we just suit it to suit our needs the problem is none of the defense lawyers have ever challenged this because they've never had to so if we go back to due process what does it say scroll to the bottom robert um as far as the citations let me it was Johnson versus Athens, Clark City, 272 Georgia, 384. Um, it's in the slide before this, Your Honor, cited it, but it basically talks about four different times in its holding that you have to have sufficient warning, fair notice, fair warning before you can be prosecuted for a crime. This has never been done before. And we shouldn't get to be the test case out there. And I'm sorry it puts you in a bad hat and you're probably gonna take a lot of heat if you do what the defense is asking you, but this can't be the standard. And so as an alternative, uh, we, we've talked about uh, potential appeal issues. You said, no, that's fine. I understand, I respect that decision, but you can see how convoluted this is. If we can't agree, and I'm sure the courts like read a million cases, I'm sure our, all our heads are spinning. What are those 12 people gonna figure out when we go through this? And by the way, judge, what are you gonna charge them? 
there's no pattern-esque elements because a lot of this stuff is elements. That's what they did in those other cases. Thank you. I think this kind of went over, as Mr. Floyd said, into both the general demure and special demure that we filed on behalf of Ms. Powell. And I think Mr. Aurora's point about due process is, under, is the underpinning of both of those motions that we filed on her behalf, the lack of notice. Um, the conduct that's at issue in this indictment that are alleged as overt acts in furtherance of a RICO conspiracy are almost all legitimate acts to overturn an election. They are lawful conduct that the government is characterizing as unlawful, but that doesn't just make it so. Uh, and with respect to the conspiracy arguments that Mr. Floyd has made, I would say this. Even a conspiracy count requires somebody to have knowing and willful intent to do something that the law forbids. All of the underlying activity that is in here that is a part of this alleged conspiracy are lawful acts. So you can't be charged with a conspiracy when everything that's being done is designed to, re to, to achieve a lawful objective. Uh, and so I'd, I'd rest on all the arguments that Mr. Aurora made that we've made in our briefs with respect to both our general demure, our special demure, and suggest that the indictment should be dismissed. Well, Mr. Rafferty, let's, uh, if you're so inclined, since I think we would be finishing up with your other motions, uh, why don't we have you stay up? And we, uh, like I said, I think we might have already touched on void for vagueness, but if uh, the other things I'd seen you raise and continuity, obviously, you'd raised uh, some concerns about the enterprise as alleged here and the insufficient predicates. If you want to, again, any of these things and the other things you raised, I've got the briefs, you know, we're working through them. But um, if there's anything you want to touch on or highlight or respond to, I think that's what this is most valuable. I guess what this I would time. say on the enterprise, Your Honor, is this. Um, the, you know, the government has argued that um, the requirements for an enterprise are, are pretty limited. Um, uh, I would say, Your Honor, that the enterprise as charged in this case um, has stretched that concept uh, beyond measure. Uh, you have a collection of folks from all over uh, the country, it seems, who used a variety of different lawful means to pursue the lawful goal. Um, that particular group of individuals can possibly be a RICO enterprise, in fact. Um, and, you know, I, I think that it, it sort of bleeds right back into what I said before. Uh, the, the, the extent to which um, these folks could be part of a RICO enterprise would essentially mean that anybody could be part of this RICO enterprise anywhere who did anything lawfully to try and overturn the results of this election. Uh, and so I'll, I'll rest on the briefs otherwise with respect to the enterprise, Your Honor, but I would just make that point. Okay. Um... Let me make sure I have that clear. Which one are you saying you adopted? Uh, Ray Smith's brief. Oh, no, the, I know. Dramatic, so like they adopted it too, and I think you're supposed to be enterprise. <laughs> All right. I don't want to wave it. Because right. I just want to waste your time since that brief is pretty. No, I understand. Okay, I just want to make sure you adopted that one. Yeah, I got it. Okay. All right, well, uh, I've got the state's response to uh, Mr. Rafferty's general and special demurs. Again, I think obviously there's... A lot of case law to get through uh, and review, and we will be making our way through it. Um, is there anything else today that we think we need to address? Let me just go and well, I'll start with you, Mr. Rafferty. Sure. Uh, 
I had one issue that I was hoping to bring up with the government and with the court and chambers. If you could. Sure. And anything else on the record we need? Um, not for the state, Your Honor. I, I take it the court doesn't have any further questions related to RICO, um, which perhaps by this time of the day is understandable. Um, and uh, so, no, nothing further for us. Just uh, for housekeeping purposes, the substantive veneers that we filed, the court just going to rule on that. I'm still working through them uh, to, to decide whether we think we need a hearing on those. So I'd asked everyone to try and keep their more likely Tuesday, Wednesday afternoon open. We can also keep those open to talk questionnaires if we need to in person or anything else that may come up in the next couple of days. And uh, so I'll keep you posted on that. The last thing was just the jury strikes and the time. Will we deal mm -hmm. with that next Tuesday or Wednesday? Well, uh, you've, you've preserved the objection for the record right now. Uh, the inclination would be we can see where we get after the first day or two and maybe I'll reconsider. Uh, and we can we can talk more about that as we uh, as we get there. But uh, I, I didn't see at this point the the necessity or need to revisit that decision, especially since we're on the uh, under the gun here to get this jury picked in about uh, what ten or so business days. Um, and I think as we alluded to, you can. Has your honor ruled on it? I no, I haven't. Well, I haven't ruled on it. I just indicated what the uh, what the plan was at the case management hearing. If you need a formal ruling, sure. For the record, look, I understand, and I understand that we elected a speedy trial. With all due respect, your honor, we can't be punished for it, and I know that's not your intent. I know that. <laughs> I think you've been an excellent judge, but I do feel like we are being punished for it because. Speedy trial is a statutory right that defendants have in the state and due process and the right to a fair and impartial jury are other rights that defendants have in the state. And I'm not trying to be flippant, judge, but I almost feel like it's one of the situations that lawyers are told all the time by judges. You haven't said it. Well, Mr. Grubman, if you have a problem with it, you need to go talk to the legislature not my job. I feel like that's what's happening here. There is definitely an argument to be made that the way the statutory and constitutional scheme is and how they interact, that if a defendant elects their speedy trial right, then it puts the court in a position where they have to speed up jury selection, therefore potentially compromising due process rights. And that's not a, a problem you created. But with all due respect, Your Honor, it's not a problem we created either by electing our due pro by electing speedy trial. Now, I said this in a footnote. I know Your Honor might have some feelings about footnotes. Other judges love footnotes, so I will take it out. But here's the thing: the case down the hall, the YSL Rico case, jury selection has been nine months. Now, do I want to sit here for nine months? No. Not at all, but let's pay Chief Judge Glanville the respect he deserves, which is to say it hasn't happened for nine months because Chief Judge Glanville has had nothing better to do. I guarantee you, if we ask him why that case, had, the jury selection has lasted so long, he will tell you because it's lasted as long as necessary 
to ensure a fair and impartial jury. And amen to that. That's what we need here. And your honor, with all due respect, and you know this judge, this is the, in some ways the case of the century. This is in some ways the case of a millennium for the way it's been charged. And the bottom line is four minutes and 15 seconds per juror is not enough. These folks are gonna come in. There's not gonna be one person who hasn't heard of Donald Trump. And here's the thing about President Trump, and I don't say this in a good or a bad way, very neutral. There's no one who doesn't feel strongly about President Trump. You either love President Trump and you're willing to go into battle with him, or you strongly dislike him. I won't use the H word. And the state might stand up and say, well, but Donald Trump isn't at the table, but he is. We know he is. We know he is. We know, Your Honor, because Mr. Wade got up and said, we're presenting 150 witnesses. By the way, that's now changed. The state sent us a witness list yesterday that had over 180 witnesses. So they seem to be going the wrong way here. And I don't understand why they could now call new witnesses after they completely blew through their deadline and they have made no showing of good faith of why they didn't know about this before. But putting that aside, 180 witnesses is not to prove a case against Sidney Powell or Ken Chesborough. It's to prove a case against the whole conspiracy. And Mr. Wade, I'll buy the transcript for you. Mr. Wade got up here and said numerous times, we have to prove the whole conspiracy that includes Donald Trump and we need all these months to do it. And now we get four minutes and 15 seconds to ask a juror. And that's not fair. And I'm gonna tell you, Your Honor, this case is gonna come back if that happens. And I'm sorry, but it will, because that is not fair. And the fact that Mr. Chesborough and Ms. Powell elected to a speedy trial rights cannot be used as a reason why we're gonna blow through at too quickly. And there's just no justification, Your Honor, no justification for a judge down the hall to have sat through jury selection for nine to 10 months and we get four minutes and 15 seconds per juror. That's unconstitutional. And that's all I'll say, thank you. So just a few thoughts and reaction. Uh, one, I don't think it can be so easily divided per juror. The intention would be uh, that on my time, we're going to determine the hardships. And if a juror has to be excused simply because they can't financially make this work or for whatever reason. And so this panel of 14 may very well get whittled down to eight or nine by the time we're actually turning it over to you to questions and to seeing what's so fixed and definite. And uh, you're going to have the benefit of a questionnaire that is extensive. And I think you're going to get a pretty good idea very quickly of uh, which kind of jury you're going to want based on that questionnaire. And if, in fact, it's what you say that these these opinions swing so wildly one way or another, uh, I, I don't. There may not be that much nuance for you to explore. But the standard here is 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 it may be unusual here in in this courthouse, but I think it's pretty well charted federally. And I think there's been, depending on who's asking desires to get more in the federal realm or away from it. But the bottom line is we've talked, or I've talked to the other federal judges and it turns out an hour would be twice as long as you, uh, the defendants would have gotten if it had gotten removed to Judge Jones. So uh, there are competing values here, but uh, the ability, the idea though, I don't think should be that um, one can in invoke a speedy trial and then run out the clock. Uh, which is, I don't think, what you want to do, but it is something I think I have to be mindful of. 
and that the uh, we'll what I'm saying is we'll see how it goes if we do our first panel of 14 and based on that very first panel we've we qualify six and we're then we're well ahead of schedule and we can expand and contract as we need to um, but at this point the plan is that the first 14 that come in uh, it would be an hour per side and same answer with the uh, additional strikes okay and just one more thing about the additional strikes just to clarify our argument these are i know it's brought together by rico and these guys are way smarter the godfather i agree with that statement uh, i hope he's proven wrong in this case but i'm not going to talk about rico but judge the fact of the matter is these conspiracies these alleged conspiracies they are different and i'm not saying they can't be the brought together legally under RICO. That's fine. That's why these smart folks got up and talked. But they are different. That deal, <laughs> Sidney Powell deals with Coffee County. Ken Chesbrough deals with, um, with the alternate elector slates. Now, the reason that's important is this. They're not uh, contradicting defenses. I'm not saying that at all. But here's why they're not contradicting defenses or whatever the word that the case law uses is because they're totally separate. They can't be contradicting defenses. They're not the same defenses either. Well, I will, I'll recognize that y'all might have completely different ideas right. and juror profiles of who you think is your ideal juror. Uh, and I'll say that if, if we're going to grant an additional strike, it would just be one so that we could divide your strikes in half and it'd be five and five apiece. Okay. Uh, but from that, I'm, 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 Again, it's primarily motivated by the time constraints we're under. Understood. So we'll see where we get. If we have the ability to qualify an extra, what would that be, three? Uh, no, actually four. That's what we'll do. Lawfare No Bull is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution and Goat Rodeo. You can support Lawfare's suite of podcasts by joining our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash lawfare. That's www.patreon.com slash lawfare. You should rate and review Lawfare No Bull wherever you found us. And you should share us on all the social medias. And as always, thanks for listening.